and welcome to another special edition energy crew that I swear is going to be out of this world. We're taking you to the atmosphere, above the atmosphere today because, well, first off, I got to give a little plug. First off, thank you everyone for tuning in uh, to Energy Crew. Um, it's been a fun ride so far. I love uh, I love getting all these people um, uh, behind the mic with me and kind of telling their story, kind of telling their kind of their their, their experiences and their and what they're seeing. Uh, in their career. And I'm so happy to have you on this uh, podcast. Finally, for those that are uh, tuning in right now, um, uh, make sure you, you, you smash that subscribe button, like it, comment, do all that fun stuff, share it with friends and all that stuff. But today I am pumped to announce that this is something that we've been talking about for what, about two and a half months now, three months getting you on right now. Right, right. And for those that are watching right now, those are tuning in right now, I am super pumped. We have Sophia Gaust, the flight traffic <laughs> air mission control um, di director of uh, NASA. So why don't you give us the yeah, real yeah, thing? I'll, why don't you give us the pitch? Okay. Let me, let me I don't myself. have my computer here, so I'm not really reading. And I, and I told you before we filmed this, I always butcher people's names. It's kind it's of okay. my, it's my deal. It's, it's my, it's what I do. It's, it's my charming. I, I it's like my it. It's my stick. It's my yeah. stick. Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Sophia Gauss and I'm a flight controller in uh, mission control for the International Space Station. So NASA. Yes, NASA. So I, I think it's so, I think it's first off, it's so cool to get you on. I think you and I met probably uh, three months ago, two months ago at July 4th. It was at Jonas house, right? Yeah, yeah. We met and we just started talking and, uh, you know, my wife and I were just talking to you and, you, and I just, I, I was really digging kind of, you know, your experience and your kind of, you know, your background and kind of what you're doing at NASA. And first off, this is going to be a, a podcast full of puns. Okay. <laughs> like, I would be disappointed if that didn't happen. Thank you. I uh, thank you. So get ready for that. So. Um, yeah, so I, I was talking to you and I, and I just really liked, you know, your enthusiasm and kind of, you know, what you do and kind of like, I guess uh, your background and kind of what you're doing over at, uh, what you're doing over NASA. And I was like, you gotta come on. You're like, oh yeah, sure. I just got to finish up this quick project that lasts three and a half months and I'll get back to you and all that stuff. But I'm so glad that's over. I'm so glad you got time to do this right now. Cause I, I'm really excited about this and what I do for podcasts. I don't prepare <laughs> ever. I'll just have you know I didn't prepare either. Good. So. Well, what are you going to prepare? Are you going to review your life? <laughs> like look at your look at, look at your memories on Facebook? No. So we're we're doing this. We're doing this at my house. It's another home session uh, right now. I think uh, before you and my wife were talking about Zelda, and I think y'all did y'all wrap that up. Yeah, yeah, we got to a good spot. Go we're gonna share notes on how to find the rest of the shrines. <laughs> okay, well, she can help you out. She's yeah. uh, she's definitely put a lot of time and effort into that, and I'm very proud of her about that. Yeah, so, it's, yes. it's a major accomplishment. I'm definitely putting it on my resume. It, you know, I think I think uh, something that takes over 80 hours of a uh, 800 hours of gameplay to to defeat, I think, is important. So, um, okay, so that's kind of the spiel on that. So yeah. let's. I, I would. I want to get this stuff. We got a lot to cover today. Really, a yeah. lot. Go. All right. Well. So why don't you give us, I'm joking. <laughs> so why don't, why don't, why don't, I want to hear kind of about your background, kind of about growing up. Um, you, you said that, you know, your father's a big influence on you before we started uh, recording this. I kind of want to get a kind of background and kind of, you know, growing up and kind of what that was like and kind of, because you have all these siblings that are also very involved in technology, AI, um, um, whatever they're doing right now, which is so awesome to hear. But I, I, I want to hear kind of how you got involved in and how you pursued um, per, getting a NASA Bring us to the beginning. Yeah. Bring, give us what's your origin story. So I grew up in Ohio in the Akron area. So where I grew up, it was not a very populated area. I mean, it was not like small, small town, but it was an area where um, it was really easy to see the night sky. Okay. And so anyone who, anyone who knows anything about Ohio's history also knows that there's a lot of um, – Former astronauts. Um, really? Our senator for a long time was actually a former astronaut. 
Um, we have a space center in Cleveland as well. And so um, in my early education in Ohio, we had like a day called Famous Ohioans and um, Famous oh, Ohioans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where we, we dress celebra- up we and celebra- make posters and pay homage we to our famous We celebrate Ohioans. that in Texas too. Famous Ohioans in yeah. Texas too. It's, it's, it's kind of off. It, not a lot of people know about it, but it's something we, we do here. In this yeah. House. Yes. So it's really, Ohio is a very important state when it comes to um, aerospace and uh, space technology. I mean, uh, the Wright brothers um, who flew the first airplane at Kitty Hawk were also from Ohio. Were they really? Yeah, they were. So there's this like underlying theme of aviation and aerospace that exists in Ohio. Okay, It's cool. very interesting. Um, Neil Armstrong is from Ohio. Who's it? First man on the moon. Joking. Thank you. Okay. So, so pretty much you, you, you grew up, you grew up and and there's no, there's not a lot of light pollution out there. So you can actually like actually look at the stars. Yes. And that's kind of started that fueled that started the, uh, the the spark that started. I would say that in conjunction with actually my, my religions, actually I'm Muslim. And so growing up, um, a major part of the Islamic faith is like when you start a new, um, month in the Islamic calendar, which is a lunar calendar, uh, you're looking for a new moon. And so on special uh, moments like Ramadan, which is our holiday Mm -hmm. or season where we fast uh, sunrise to sunset, uh, at the end of Ramadan, you're looking for the new moon for the next month to commemorate the end. And so there's a lot of language there surrounding looking up at the sky and the stars. And there's also a lot of... um, imagery in the Quran that's related to the stars and well, the symbols of a moon, correct? Is exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, the crescent moon is symbolic. And then also we have such a rich history in the middle East, um, for, uh, astronomers, some of the most right. famous astronomers are from the middle East. And so really my origin story is I wanted to be an astronomer first. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I really loved looking at the stars. I really loved laying out me and my sister. We would go to a field near my dad's work. He used to work at Allstate Insurance in Hudson, Ohio. And there was a field nearby. My dad used to work overnight shifts every okay. once in a while. And so me and my sister, if it was a, you know, not, it wasn't a cloudy night, we'd be able to go out there and my, we would, me and my sister, we'd lay out a blanket. We'd lay out and like look for meteors and just find all the different constellations in the sky. And so that was a real formative experience for me. That's so cool. It's it's so cool. It's it's part of, it's part of the, you know, your religion side of uh, things It's part of, you know, you growing up going, spending time with your dad. And it's also part of like just kind of staring up and and looking at the stars. I dig that. Yeah. And there were all these, I guess, indicators or factors that kept pushing this like space narrative in my head. Like just something about looking at the stars was really impactful for me growing up. Okay. And there's a couple other moments in my childhood, which kind of like bumped me in the head. Like maybe this is a thing that you should think more about and actually think about as a career. And, um, one of those moments was when I was in middle school, uh, we used to have ball rocket competitions in my, in my middle school. And, um, this was like fifth grade or something like that. And I, we were making these ball rockets out of like two liter bottles and yeah. like some coins and some cardboard fins. Right. And, uh, we would pressurize these, uh, bottles full of water and we just send them across our football field, our middle school. And 
I had like broken the school record or something for this ball rocket competition. And I remember in like the yearbook, they do like superlatives or something. And I was like, most likely to become a rocket scientist. You're like, well, I was going to do something else, but I guess <laughs> yeah. I got to do this I guess now. No, no, I have to. I guess I'm, my fifth grade decision. <laughs> yes, I'm really committed. So question about that. Let's, let's, let's peel that onion a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you obviously designed this bottle for this bottle rocket yeah, yeah. thing. All right. There's obviously, you know, people are following probably kind of the same protocol on, on how to make a bottle fly across a football field, but you're doing something different. Maybe, maybe not. You're doing something different. That's kind of setting the school record and, and, and sealing your fate as a fifth grader. Yes. <laughs> was this kind of an out, out, you know, out of the box thing, uh, design or thinking, or did you just do something different? I mean, what was it? Um, I would have loved to have some sort of like super like smart answer about this, like physics I applied to you it. You literally have somehow. your chance right now, but okay. Yeah. But yeah, that would be light. Really. It was just honestly looking back, it was just luck of the draw. Like I just really, the design that I liked, the one that I wanted to pursue and the amount of water I decided to put in my bow rocket. Like it was all really at the time it was just kind of luck. Okay. It, I wouldn't say it was entirely luck. Like, I think I had a good intuition yeah, for like, how, how on it. the heck is this thing going to go far? Like, what can I, where can I put these balanced weights? Like we were using coins, like quarters. Yeah. I think we were using, um, where should I place those? Like hold it stable. So it doesn't like spin out of control. Like, I think I had an intuition for it, but it wasn't like I was crunching numbers in fifth grade. Yeah. To, you like, were breaking up the TA 83 plus, <laughs> right. but that's interesting though. I mean, that, that, that does say a lot about someone. I think the fact that you're able to look at something, whether you're not, whether you're not crunching the numbers, doing the math, doing the trajectory or anything like that, but you're able to look at something, you know, especially being in fifth grade and saying, this makes sense. I don't know why it does, yeah. but this makes sense. Yes. And it was, it was very intuitive for me at that time. Okay. Um, yeah. And so like after that, you know, it would be impressive for me to say like, oh, and then from there on, I knew I was going to be a rocket scientist, right. but honestly it wasn't the case. I ended up, even to this day, I am a type of person where I love all different types of, um, hobbies and skills and like things you can learn in life. And my attention for like what I wanted to do when I grew up was like all over the place. At one point I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be, um, I don't even remember. It was just like a list that just kept going and going of things I wanted to like investigate and see if it was worthwhile pursuing. But um, this trend kept reappearing in my life that was very focused on pursuing something space related. Do you notice that though, growing up, you know, I feel like, you know, the, the older you get, the more you realize, okay, well that's you know, the universe telling me this, you know, that's, mm -hmm. you know, God, or that's Allah telling me this, like that's pushing me in this direction and all that stuff. Do you, did you feel that as a kid? Like, wow, something's going on, pushing me in this general direction towards, I guess, getting involved in, in space. It's so much easier to say this in hindsight, right? Because I can yeah. I can go back and pick out like specific events that have helped me get here because, you know, in the moment, you know, I did end up pursuing aerospace engineering at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. And I didn't realize it at the time that I was going to be exposed to all sorts of different types of engineering. Even though I pursued aerospace, my school was very focused on renewable energies, um, applying um, uh, aerodynamics, like wind turbines and okay. things like that to help pursue and enable wind energy because wind energy is a big industry in Chicago. Right. So, so making it more, making the, making the terminals more efficient. Right. And stuff like, okay. So that was like a one aspect. And then I also worked in the robotics lab at Illinois tech. And, uh, so I was exposed to robotics and dynamics and more of just ro Rover type robotics. Okay. So we were talking about rovers that may go to the moon or Mars one day type development. And I wasn't really doing anything crazy. It was my freshman year and I was building chassis for these robots and like, 
Was that uh, exciting for you? I mean, was that because you went in for aerospace engineering? Now mm. you're building these kind of these, you know, robots. Uh, you know, these was yeah. that was that exciting? These rovers was was it was the, it the was ex- space? It, it was exciting. Um, but I think the thing I always come back to in my life is I really just end up following whatever sounds interesting to me at the time. I don't. It's always easier in hindsight for me to say like I knew exactly where I was headed or I knew exactly this was going to be the piece that helped me get to where I ended yeah. up going. But it was really just this sounded cool and this is something I would like to spend my time doing. And um, yeah, so it did excite me and it was interesting because it was somewhat in line with, you know, space related stuff that I wanted to pursue one day with an aerospace engineering degree. But it wasn't again, it wasn't like, oh, this is going to help me work at NASA one day. It was just like, this is a cool thing I can do. So so the goal of uh, working at NASA or working wherever that you're, you're, you're at, or you're going to be or wherever that is, that's not the goal for you. It's, right. it's, it's, it's getting wrapped into something that interests you and find that you find your passion in. That's something that you really dig in and you're excited about that to you is kind of more the driver than, Oh, this is my goal in five years. I want to be, you know, the director of space. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, I see this all through, all throughout my uh, college education. I ended up, um, going to Germany for two summers and doing different internships there. One was a research position at the University of Darmstadt. And we were doing research into water particles and like how they spread through a spray as multiple applications and different industries. And it wasn't really my my thing, but it was something I was interested in pursuing because I hadn't done something like that before. Um, And then my second internship was um, at a drive shaft uh, organization in Germany. And that was also just a chance to work more in like the industry out there rather than research at a university. Um, and again, it was just a chance for me to do something I thought would be interesting, something that I thought, um, I was going to learn something new from and experience something new. Um, and I think, like I said, everything I've done when I look back at it led me to work at NASA, but at the moment it was really just, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen in two or three right, years. No one does. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's made very clear. Yeah. yeah. Are you talking about like back then you didn't know two or three years or even now? Even now, yeah, you're even right. now the way I live my life is very much, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen in two to five years where, what position I want at NASA or where I want to go particularly, but I do know the skills I want to gain or I see an opportunity and I want to pursue it because I think I'll learn something from it. Sophia, I had a conversation with with a, with a guy named Hank Porter, and he said something kind of very similar to that, which I think is so cool. And I think this is kind of a cool thing to resonate out there to the listeners right there. It's like I remember starting off, you know, in the oil field, people are like, you know, what's your five year plan? What's your 10 year plan? And all that stuff. And like I always felt like I had an answer, you know, but it was always mm-hmm. some bullshit answer. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do, but right. Hank and what you're saying kind of echoes is, is such a cool uh, concept. It's like, don't have a five-year plan. Don't, I mean, you can throw that out the window because it really doesn't matter much. But the thing that you should be focusing on is opportunities that pop up or, 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 or areas what you're, and I like your addition, areas that interest you or engage you more, that, that you want to kind of pour yourself into a little bit more. So I think that's, I love how you're saying that, like, don't follow your five-year plan, follow your passion, follow your opportunities. I like that. And I think, um, I think a thing I realized in hindsight, looking at this path, the way I decided to live my decisions in the past was that it gave me so much flexibility to learn new things. I wasn't so fixated on a singular goal that I was only learning the skills that were, that I thought assumed were required to get there. Had I done that, I may not have had the skills that I needed by the time 
that opportunity actually arose. So you, so I'm, I like where we're at the store, but I kind of want to go back to kind of an important piece right now. Um, kind of something we were talking about, you know, off, you know, when we're recording right now. Um, so, you know, you as a kid gazing at the stars, you, you know, launching a water bottle and all that stuff, but you, there was also another influencer in, in your life that kind of, um, uh, for example, like, I mean, I'll be showing Evelyn all these, this, you know, whatever science stuff, but she's like, oh, okay, like I, I like it. She's more of an architect. She's more of an engineer. Um, but you know, a lot of people are, but, but what I'm saying is you had someone in your life that kind of, um, I guess started this, this fostering of, um, of, of discovery and learning curiosity, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Curiosity. So yeah, give so him my, a plug. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my dad deserves a lot of credit. He's listening right now. He's yes. like, that's right. I do. <laughs> my dad deserves, even my mom, they both deserve so much credit because we were the, me and my siblings, my three siblings, we were encouraged to pursue science and technology. And it wasn't forced upon us in the sense of we must pursue a specific career, a specific um, industry. It was more of here are all these tools available to you. My dad exposed us to computers super duper young and he made it available to us so that we could be um, introduced and engaged with technology early on. He didn't want us to be on the back end of any trend. He wanted us to be at the forefront he wanted us to be exposed to all the different, um, cause at that time, you know, we had, um, I was the first kid to have a laptop. I was the first kid to have two phone lines in my house. So I could, uh, you know, be online and talk to my friends on the phone or like two people could be on the phone at the same time or. But what's but, cool about that though, it's like you know, what you're describing is pretty much, you know, a lot of kids want the, you know, the shiny new stuff. They want mm -hmm. the new iPad, the new iWatch, whatever. I want whatever you know, go with me. Look, I, I told you I don't listen to myself during these things. I sound like an idiot. Just go with me. All right. So like a lot of people, you know, the parents buy it for it's new is new, but it seems like with, with your stories, I'm, I'm sensing some sort of like undertone of like, it's not just to have the shiniest new laptop or the new mm -hmm. this, but however, like there's, there's, I'll, you, I want you to see the structure of this and, and be exposed to, I guess, how yeah. it can improve and what, what you can improve on. Like there's more, there's, it's more of a, of a, of a, of a student side of it or yeah. a learning side. Cause my dad, he had a second business growing or he had a business on the side when we were young and he was fixing computers for people and he would have like his little screwdriver set and he'd be breaking apart computers and like fixing things. Yeah. And, um, so we were around that and we were around him coding. We were around him troubleshooting. We were around him learning these technologies too. And then showing us these like tips and tricks on how to use it. And like, showing us why it was cool and like why, it, you know, it, it was interesting to him. He was sharing the why behind it okay. more than just like giving us technology. And I think, you know, one thing I've noticed, I, mean, I don't have kids of my own, but I think when I look back at my life, you know, I don't think in the moment, again, I was like picking up on this and like consciously like, oh, my dad's teaching me something, no. right? But you always like look back and I was looking at my dad's behaviors, right? And how he was the first to figure out how to fix something. He wasn't just outsourcing to someone else like come here and fix this. Like right. my dad was a troubleshooter. My dad was the one who's going to like get his hands dirty and fix it himself. Like it wasn't even just the technology that he was handing to us and saying, here's how it works. Like play around with this thing. It was also like his attitude towards, um, problem solving. And I think that's what makes a really good engineer and a really, um, whether you're in operations or designing stuff is like if, you have the capacity and understanding of like how to 
actually operate or like how to fix something like trouble. Yeah. Problem solving. I mean, I know people, I know people that's like, Oh yeah, lawnmower broke. So I just took it apart, figured it out and put it together again. I'm like, what? Right. You have a lawnmower. Like that's, that's my first shock. You know what I mean? But like, it's, it's, it's interesting when people are able to like take something, uh, obviously something put together by someone else and someone that's manufactured or whatever, component and able to break it apart and understand this goes to this to do this. I think that that side of it's so fascinating. So you're growing up in this atmosphere, you know, you, you got your dad, teaching you without teaching you. He's just being himself. Right. And, uh, all your siblings are learning this stuff too. That's kind of, so he's passing down these, these, you know, get your roll up your sleeves and get it done type of thing. So this kind of, so is, did, did you get into college, right. And you're pursuing to be an aerospace engineer. And I'm assuming, you know, engineering was obviously probably like because of your upbringing, because of your mm-hmm. interest and your passions, all this stuff, it seemed like a natural fit. And so you're doing this. And so when you're there, uh, I know you just talked about your two internships, but kind of walk me through your, your, your college process on kind of, you know, being an engineer and kind of what you're taking, trying to find out what you're doing. Cause there's a lot of people right now in that situation of like, man, I kind of want to get in this, uh, this engineer, or this engineer, or uh, what, what do you have to, to, to speak to that in your experience? Yeah. So in my experience, honestly, going into it, it was still kind of a guess of what I wanted to do. Like I told you there was a lot of different things. I could have seen myself pursuing, but you have to start somewhere and just getting exposed and exposing yourself to different types of engineering, I think helps you narrow down what it is that you want to do. And like I said, I had exposure to all different types of engineering because, you know, other projects I was working on were engineers at borders types projects where we were doing electrical um, solar panel projects for um, a school in Haiti. And so I got exposed a little bit of electrical engineering. I got exposed like I was just seeing the different types of engineering that was out there and just kind of kept reaffirming that what I chose was a good one for me. Um, And, you know, aerospace does touch on different types of engineering. It's kind of a mix of chemical with um, mechanical with electrical. Like there's just a lot of different ways you can apply aerospace engineering. It's not literally just rockets. And my curriculum at um, Illinois Institute of Technology wasn't just focused on space. It was focused on aircraft as well and avionics and the things that help support um, both spacecraft and aircraft. So it was just a mix of all sorts of types of engineering too. So I really liked it was kind of like a mixed bag where you kind of get exposed to a little bit of everything. And it just seemed great. I think that's great. So yeah. So from there, um, I actually... A hard pivot. <laughs> I ended up uh, starting a company with a with a uh, friend I had met through Engineers at Borders. Uh, we ended up uh, entering into an incubator called the Impact Engine in Chicago with our uh, company idea. It was a social entrepreneurship. We were designing energy generators for people living in poverty in Kenya. Oh, hold on a second. Let me, let me How do we end up oh, there? No, 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 no. no, no, no. I, I dig that, but I'm going I'm to back up. An incubator is pretty much like Silicon Valley, where you bring a lot of, you know, you know, intelligent people, smart minds in the room, and you just start kind of like brainstorming. You start solving problems and fixing this mm-hmm. and thinking of new ways to, I guess, uh, attack a problem or develop a solution. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good summary of exactly what we got exposed to. Very good. You Thanks. Passed, you passed Thanks. class. That's the only thing I'm prepared for. <laughs> I just want to know what the incubator definition was. So anyway, so moving forward. Yeah. So, so, so you started a what? A generator for people in poverty in, in where, Kenya? In Kenya, yeah. Okay, so A, why Kenya? Mm-hmm. Uh, B, I mean, what what brought y'all to do, do, doing that? Yeah, so <laughs> there was a moment in college, or a couple of moments in college where I was exposed to entrepreneurship. It was actually a really um, big, tr- I guess, 
the word is trend? I, I don't know. It was no, just a thing people were exposed to a lot of in what college. Year, what year was this? Because I think I know what year this entrepreneurial, like... 2010, 2012. Oh, that was so... That word was so... Everyone was an entrepreneurial back then. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I was like, I don't know what that is, but I think... <laughs> yeah, everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, you're, self, you're self-motivator. Everyone wanted to start their own company. Everyone was coming up with business pitches. Yeah. Like, no matter, you know, what field you were in, it just seemed like everyone was, like, really trying to get into an incubator, get some sort of seed funding, get out there with their idea and just catch the momentum and be the next Facebook of energy generators. So, 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 so I think everyone's still trying to do that to this day. So yeah. tell me about, I guess, this, this, this Kenya uh, generator project. Yeah. So um, we were trying to develop energy generators for people living in poverty in Kenya. So at the time and still to, to this day, kerosene is the number one fuel source okay. for folks in poverty. They're lighting kerosene inside their homes to get light so that can, um, redo homework, deliver babies, uh, uh, work, do whatever, yeah, raise exactly. their family. Exactly. And there's a lot of risks with having Absolutely. kerosene inside your home, everything from physical damage to property damage, health, everything, everything. Um, and so there's this industry of social entrepreneurs out there. that are trying to get those folks access to other types of energy sources so they can do just the basics. And so at that time, all we wanted to do was find a way to give energy to folks in poverty at an affordable cost. Um, the needs that we were trying to met, meet at that time was um, enough light for the evening for a student to read by right. and then also uh, charge a cell phone. Because one thing that was shocking to me at the time, and this was back in what, 2012 to 2014 timeframe, was uh, the cell phones. They were skipping laptops and computers and everything was on their phone. Banking was on their phone, um, finding jobs. Everything was like right. your phone. Makes sense. They just completely leapfrogged yeah. that. So yeah, that was another thing we were trying to... Which is a cool leapfrog, I think. I think so too. I think it's a pretty cool one. Once you bypass all that, you know, the... the the station on the computer and all of a sudden just switch to phones. It's mobile right now. Yeah. So anyway, I interrupted you. That's what I'm good at. Ask Monica, but go on. <laughs> and um, so we wanted to <laughs> provide this energy through kinetic energy. So there is, there was an existing energy out there using solar energy, solar panels to um, provide this need. But we had come up with this concept at the time of turning people power into electrical power. So sounds like a tagline, but I'm in. <laughs> Talk to me. Get your shark tank. Go. <laughs> Well, so, um, we, so my co-founder, Alan, he had spent a few years in Kenya and what he had noticed is that people were always on the move. It's not a sedentary lifestyle. You're on out in the farm, working the land, you're out on a boat fishing, you're a ta- like a, a bicycle taxi driver. Right. You're a woman that's, you know, working during the day around the home. People are moving all the time. Right. And the question we kept asking ourselves is can we harness that energy as a community and find like a community place where people can, um, they would backing up no, people, yeah. people would be carrying with them some sort of energy generator as they're moving and that turning that kinetic energy into electrical energy that they could then harness into a maybe community type location where they could discharge this energy and every, it would be a community source for people to get together and, um, utilize light or charge our cell phones, which were like, like I said, the two main needs that we were trying to meet. And we were trying to make it a community type event because we wanted everyone to have buy-in into it's making this work. It's not going to work without buy-in. 
that and the fact that if only some subset of people had access to this, we didn't want those people to be um, at risk of crime, at risk of being targeted for having access to something that others did not have yeah. access to. So you pretty much took the Rick and Morty idea with them stepping on those things <laughs> yeah, yeah. and kind of to power everything kind of. But you did it before it was cool. Right. Before it was cool. But the thing that's hard and any engineer that's listening knows that harnessing kinetic energy is very difficult. <laughs> And kinetic energy for those non-engineers out there, that's the, that's the energy stored in a moving object, uh, mm -hmm. correct? Like yes. the, the, the power of a moving object or something like that. I know it from Gambit, from X-Men. Yeah. And so obviously when, not obviously, this is why I'm explaining. No, say obviously. <laughs> it makes you sound like more smart. Like <laughs> obviously thermodynamics is this. Right. Um, energy is released through different mediums and some of it's transferred from one object to the other. The others, noise, heat, so thermal. Um, so you have different ways to expose of that excess energy, okay. not excess. So it's transferred somewhere. It goes right. somewhere. Um, so it's either getting transferred to another object or it's being released as heat, thermal, or sound or other. So what happened What happened to the uh, Power by People? Yeah. What, what was it called, by the way? We were, we were called Light Up Africa. <laughs> Light Up Africa. What, yes. what, so, what, so what happened? Light Up, what, what were some of the challenges, I guess, uh, that that y'all that saw there? A big part of it was the technology. I mean, as stated, there's a lot of R&D costs to get something like that going and like figuring out how to make it not only viable and like meet the tech uh, technology needs of how much power we're asking from it, but also uh, keeping it affordable. Right. We could end up designing and R&Ding something that works, but is it actually going to be affordable for people where the community could purchase this and then actually utilize it? Um, the other thing to always keep in mind when you're designing for the de developing world is making sure it's something that's easily maintainable. They're not going to have like... They're not going to have a call center three miles down the road right. where they can come and fix the... Uh, yeah, okay, right. that's a good point. Yeah, so there's a lot of different factors when designing for the developing world that needs to be kept in mind. Obviously, it's a completely different culture. It's a completely different demographic. You're, right. I mean, you're, you're clearly different from them. Right. You grew up in America. You're going to have a different perspective than people that live in poverty in Africa. Like, it's just... I think that's important, though. I think I think what you're saying right now is extremely important because there's a lot of times, I mean, whether it's, you know, the U.S. or wherever else in the world, people are so focused, like, well, this is how, how come they just don't do this? Like, because that's how it's over. So it's, it's, it's a lot about, um, it's, yeah, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding kind of like, okay, well, this would, look, just because it's it's an easy fix doesn't mean that they're going to fix it because their time is probably spent, you know, surviving, getting other stuff, taking care of their families, walking seven miles to school and coming back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to really keep the culture in mind and some things as subtle as color. Color means very different things in different communities. So what, you know, obviously in our community, red means stop, but that right. might not necessarily mean the same thing in other communities. And so like, that's just a very basic example of some assumptions folks might make when designing something for a different community that they're not a part of, because you really have to talk to the people and really um, engage with them. And this concept I'm explaining is like a whole field of thought. It's called human centered design and it's something. HCD. Yes. Have you heard of it before? Go on. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the concept of human centered design is you're designing for humans. It sounds really obvious, but sometimes you really lose sight of that when you're designing something, you think you're just designing for a, a purpose. A, yeah. A purpose. An like angle. it needs to do something, yeah. but really you're not trying to do something. You're trying to meet the needs of a demographic or a group of people. Like there's 
people at the end of this product that you have to design for. Did you enjoy this whole process of oh, the entrepreneurial <laughs> starting something, you know, in Kenya, which is, you know, it's obviously, it's not a, it's not a direct flight. You know what I mean? Like no. there's a lot of, so did you enjoy, I guess this, this entrepreneurial side, like developing this thing? And, and, and I absolutely get loved it. There's a completely different feeling. There's of what I do now from, which we'll get into later, but well, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. It's just a completely different feeling. There's anyone who's an entrepreneur has, put their neck out there and just start something from scratch. There's that feeling of everything is impacted by the decisions I make. Like there's no safety net. No one's going to come like fix this problem. The problem is going to be there until me and my co-founder, we find a way to fix it. <laughs> okay. For, first off, you just laid it. So I just started my <laughs> yeah. thing at 41 years old, about a month and a half ago. And the fact you're actually just like throwing that <laughs> on me right now, I really wish you wouldn't make it about me. It's about you. Okay. So I'm trying to talk to me. By talking around, God. <laughs> just some advice. Now, now, now we Been think, there, done that. Now, now this rest of the podcast will be thinking like, oh shit, what do I got to do now? I'm screwed. Yeah. But it is also very empowering. It's a, it was a strong lesson to learn as a young person yeah. is that, that accountability that no one, like the decisions that you make in life impact, like the impact it has, it, it matters. Like it's not every small decision you make matters and like putting that importance behind it. And understanding if you make a mistake, it's your job to go fix it. And holding that accountability, I think, is a really strong lesson to learn as a young engineer. And so how old were you about this time when you were doing uh, the uh, Light Up Africa? 21 to 23. So that's a that's a, that's a a pretty heavy thing. And that's that's a real world lesson to learn at 21, 23. Yeah. A lot of 21, 23s are doing something very different than that. Yes. And, you know, I've seen new hires come into NASA who, you know, we hire really amazing people, but also you know, that's a lesson that they may not have learned yet. I mean, they're just fresh out of college yeah. and they're just like, how does this whole industry, how does this even work? Like my name's not on like anything big. Like I'm, I'm just doing my little job over here. But if everyone were to take accountability at that level, at their role, can you imagine what a corporation would look like or an organization like that level of importance to every decision they make? And obviously not every decision has big impacts, but if you take your job that seriously and you put that importance behind the name that your name that you're putting on your work. I just think, I think that's an awesome yeah. that statement that, that you made that I, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's just cause you might be a, a attempt trying to go to, to full hire or whether it's just your first week on the job. I love that. The, the fact that like, like have accountability, have some respect for your name and respect for your work and all that. And, um, because you're right, because, Every little decision, every little movement component to the, because a company is not a company. It's an organism. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There's, there's people, it's made up of people. Right. Okay. So if I do like that aspect of taking accountability, show prize, and then, then things are going to start going for the gelling and jiving for the whole team and the, and then the entire organization throughout. Right. Exactly. And I think that's something I really try and push to my mentees is that level of accountability of how do you. That's an, it's an easy way to build trust is if you show that you're accountable, that your name means something when you're saying you're going to go do something, that you're really going to go do it and you're going to do your best at it. And, you know, there's a level of priorities in management, right? Like you're not going to do every single task as if it's a top priority. You're going to yeah. manage your work, obviously. But when it's ready to be like sent out, you're going, I want people to feel pride about what they've done. And that's why I really push on my mentees that I have. 
So let's, let's so let's get let's get back to this because I do want to go. Um, so obviously, I, I mean, the mentorship side of the thing, we can stop right now and talk about mentorship. <laughs> I think mentorship is extremely important. I think it, it's something that is uh, talked about a lot. I think uh, there's a lot of times when you know people, you know, you know, my age or around my age, <clears throat> whatever. They, oh, my mentor was this person. They did this. They provide this guidance. They provide this counsel, you know, professionally and personally. But it, I think it takes a lot too to say, okay, now it's my turn to mentor. Now it's so. Is that something that you and you took on yourself? Like, hey, look, I think it's I think it's time for me to start mentoring, you know, others. Or is that is that kind of a NASA thing? Like, hey, look, you're a mentor now. Um, both. So at now, um, I would say I'm going to talk about my team specifically. So my team specifically that I'm on, um, every new hire is assigned a mentor. Okay. So it just kind of, it's a little bit matched by like what we think personalities are going to match and I like it. kind of just guesswork, uh, to start with, but there's formal mentoring and there's informal mentoring. So you have a formal mentor and that's your person that, you know, is going to advocate for you throughout your training and that you go to for any formal gates in your training, things like that. Um, but then there's informal mentorship. And I think, you know, I was assigned mentees throughout the last eight years I've been at NASA, but I think I've taken on a very strong informal mentoring role because for me, I love seeing people succeed and I, and I don't want people to find out far too late that they are doing something that is detrimental to their success. I think the informal mentor side of it too, I think is probably more impactful in people's lives, overall lives. Versus the formal, like you have to be this person's mentor versus like, I'm seeing what this person's doing. I see that they're passionate about it. I see that they're into it. I, I want to help them out. Yeah, exactly. I think it shows, um, I, I think there might be a little bit of like a bias of like, oh, you, when it's your formal mentor, like, oh, you have to help me or like, you're only helping me because you were assigned to help me. But an informal mentor is someone who's choosing yeah. to take the time to guide you and give you guidance. And I, I will say that just recently I've been reflecting on this a lot about how important it is to see everyone on your team as an opportunity to mentor, whether that's up or, you know, up towards your management okay. or laterally to your peers or like down to like, you know, if you're new, if you're talking to new hires, I think we all could learn something. And I think a team that's empowered where everyone is giving each other feedback and coaching each other is a stronger team. So the more informal mentoring I see on a team, the more uh, likelihood I see in them that they'll have success. And also going back to accountability, it's not just a question of, hey, this is my name. This is It's also owning up to when, when you do make a mistake. Right. <laughs> yes. What? Yes. <laughs> what? Just taking me flashbacks to something very recent. But oh, yes, account yeah, accountability. Uh, if you're not willing to put if you're in charge of something, you're not willing to take accountability for what goes wrong. You also have no right in taking accountability for what goes right. You have to take the good and the bad. And the worst thing is too, I and mean, whether it's you, whether it's your your child or whether it's your your boss or whether it's your your colleague. I mean, look, if you mess up, I mean, that's one of those things. People look at yourself. I mean. It, you don't like excuses. You don't want to hear excuses. You're like, look, that's fine. I see what happened. I saw this. I saw this. Like, don't give me excuses that it was someone else's deal. It was someone else's deal. Uh, this is this is every industry right now. This yeah. is, I think this is every level right now. It's one of those things like, hey, look, I I messed up. I thought I thought it was the right move. It wasn't the right move. Help me learn from this. Yes, debriefing and lessons learned are so important, and that's a big part of our NASA culture. And I think we do it in a very formal way, and I think there's still room for growth in informal uh, lessons learned debriefing on 
small interactions, right? Like, I think it's hard to tell people that um, you made a mistake on how you communicated with them or how. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. We've, we've all been short with people. We've all communicated in a way that may have hurt someone's feelings. We may communicate things in a way that um, didn't give someone credit where credit was due. You know, people make mistakes. We are all human, but I think it takes a lot of courage. And I think it shows a lot of strength when you're willing to say to someone, Hey, you know, I communicate this poorly to you. Or if there's just conflict, like let's say two people are just continuously talking past each other or have completely different, um, personalities or personalities, yeah. Yeah. or let's say they have different perspectives on like they're advocating for two very different things. And there's just tension between those areas. There's reconciling the two and talking of like, and, and working through like, how can we resolve this and what lessons learned can we take away? So in the future, we minimize these types of, um, uh, disagreements where maybe it got a little bit heated or, you know, I think having those lessons learned type conversations, we don't do that. I don't see that very often in, in a formal way. It takes, it takes a lot of also just being kind of humble, be like, look, I know you're not attacking me. Like I probably like, that's the thing yeah. about communication. You know I mean? Everyone can commu- I could say, Hey, look, I could describe something to you and it's my mind is it's this way. And you could draw out what I'm t- talking about. We completely different. So that right there shows you the difference in communication. I think it's a question of dropping that ego and kind of going with like, okay, well, how could I improve a little bit? And I'll tell you what, if you get your ass chewed for, you know, taking accountability for being wrong. And it's one of those things where put your job, look, I'm not talking about like a serious, serious mess up, you know, boo boo. Yeah. I'm talking, you know, one of those minor everyday daily things. It's probably not the right team or place for you to be if, if it's one of those things where you can't make a mistake. Right. And I think it, I think, um, you know, I think back to one example recently in my life, just to make it a little bit more personal where, you know, I, I had a coworker that I had some conflict with and, and I didn't really even know where the conflict came from. I just could tell that in all of our interactions, there was tension, something going on. There was something going on and we weren't talking about what was really going on. Okay. Right. And I could, I could sense that this isn't how I wanted things to be. Right. It's no fun having to work with someone often where it just felt like there was. Just, it's, too, it's, it's too much weight. It's, yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. And it takes away from the collaboration and the teamwork that's necessary to get complex things done. Right. Um, and I remember approaching this person and letting them know, like, you know, I can sense that something's wrong here and this isn't how I want our interactions to feel. And I didn't want to, you know, I tried to stay away from any words about blame. Like you're. You're a mean, you're a bully, you're don't get yeah, you, you were trying not to be defensive. Right. Right. And I didn't want to put a label to what she was doing because I didn't know what she was doing. And maybe it, she'll say it's something in my head. And then, you know, maybe it is. You know, I have to analyze myself as well. Like maybe it is un, like, did I have an insecurity? Like what what's going on here? But I had to have a conversation with her. Okay. Right. And I had to actually ask the questions. Those are assuming. uncomfortable conversations though. But they're important for a team to function well. Right. Yeah. And what I've noticed is even in that conversation and, you know, we didn't necessarily get to a root of something. Like it wasn't like, oh yeah, I hate you because you do, you know, it wasn't like. Yeah, you took my parking space. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, you know, it wasn't like something that concrete we could pick at. But I think we all, we both walked away with this feeling of, yeah, we should, we should make this better. That's, that's great. As long as you can build on something positive right. from having the, one of those like real crucial conversations. Right. And since then you know, I've seen it turn around for both of us and we had to work on this really critical project and it felt like 
from there, we were just on the same page. And there was this level of just giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Like, nice. you know, we talk a lot through teams. We use Microsoft teams. So we're IMing a lot. It's really hard to gauge tone yeah. and it's really important to give people the benefit of the doubt. If they send you a really short, short answer, you're like, sure. What does sure mean? <laughs> yeah. Does that mean you're happy about this or not? Give me right. a yes with an exclamation point. Right. And if you have underlying tension, right, you're going to assume. Oh, they're being, they're being shitty. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're, if you've talked about it and e like I said, even if we didn't come to some sort of like, you know, this was a thing and we need to work through it. We just knew we needed to, we want, both wanted to be better for each other and for the project. From there, it was just. It was just so much easier. And I think having those hard conversations is the friction that you just need to get rid of to start. You know what? I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this. I'm kind of digging this. It, it, uh, there's a lot of industries where it's, you know, like, oh, like, uh, oh, I'm a, I'm a good engineer. I'm a good drilling engineer. I'm a good completion engineer. This, you know, I, I make great decisions and all that stuff. But what it sounds like with you and the, and the teams at NASA, it's like it truly has to be a team. Like, mm -hmm. because there, you, there's so many moving parts, there's so many details, there's so many equations and all that stuff. Like, it truly has to be a team. And to be a good team, you have to have those, the trust and the communication. Right. You know, we often say at NASA, flight control is a team sport. It's because everyone has a different position that they play. L literally, we sit in different positions in mission control. And everyone has their area of responsibility. Are you in the room, like, looking at the big screen? Yeah. Are you really? <laughs> yes. So do you plan like your geek out whenever like it, like there's touchdown, do you plan like how excited you're going to be? You can't be too, you can't geek out too much, but you have to be really excited. Do you plan that? I would, I would, I would rehearse that personally. So for me, I get so excited every shift, whether it's a training shift or. Wait a minute. Are we getting the, I don't want, let's, can we stop right now? Cause I yes. don't want to get in the meat of this. Cause I've really, let's, yeah, yeah. I want to, let's talk about NASA. Cause I really kind of want to talk about what you do Yeah, yeah. because so, this is really cool. Yeah. So let's, let's get into it now then. Yeah. Okay, so what do I do at NASA? So my team, I'm I work in mission control and the team I'm on is the operations support officers. We're called OSOs, um, which okay. is Spanish for bears. So our little symbol I on our patch that. is a bear. Not ev not everyone knows that. I, I, I didn't know that until I started either. Um, so yeah, I'm on the OSOs. So our job is operations support, which means we do all the birthing missions that contain any cargo ops to the space station. So all the science and food, clothing, air tanks, things to help. So it's Uber Eats for the, for the space shuttle. Yeah, basically. For yeah. the ISS. Yeah. So we support that and I have a certification to support the birthing of these large cargo vehicles to the space station. Um, we also do all of the maintenance and repairs on board space station. So literally anything that could fail inside the space station, our job is to work with the engineers that built it to figure out a way to fix it. So uh, that's the maintenance side of things. And then we also do all the outfitting and installations of new hardware. So if new technology is flying, um, or replacement technology, like we're just changing out something due to end of life right. or, um, upgrading something, we're the team that's actually writing the procedures, working with the astronauts and installing those new hardware. God, that's gotta be so fascinating because it's not like you can just like drive to location, you know, remove this panel, put it back in. And especially if it's been up, if it's been up there for so long, obviously, technology gets faster, gets smaller. It's a, uh, you know, certain things, well, they don't make this part anymore. I mean, so I guess go, I mean, what is that process like when you're actually like, okay, well, we got to fix something up there and, uh, it's, it's a new model or new, whatever, new piece of uh, hardware, whatever that yeah. is like, what is that? I guess is that, is, what is that process like? 
So honestly, it's very different depending on how urgent the need is. Okay. So if it's something like life support equipment that is provide, like an example is cleaning the air of carbon dioxide. You know, so if something like that were to fail, we would want to repair that as yeah. soon as possible. Yeah. So the timeline in the process is much shorter and we'll be, you know, doing a quick turnaround and we would likely have all the procedures and documents mostly in place to get that done in one or two day turnaround. So those types of things are kind of like the, okay, Houston, we got a problem here type of situation. And, you know, we're getting our experts together on our team, working with the engineering teams to scrub through our procedures, make sure they're accurate and help provide all the inputs that the astronauts need in order to go execute changing out of this equipment. So the astronauts like the rock stars of NASA. Oh my God. (laughs) I admire them so much. And I think anyone at NASA would tell you that they are as incredible as you would imagine not being at NASA. Like I still have the same respect for them that I had when I wasn't at NASA. Like it's just that same level of admiration. I just feel very blessed that I get a chance to train them and work with them in a more intimate level. I would say that's such a, I mean, think about that. I mean, they're they're all the way, you know, up there, wherever wherever they're at, where they're orbiting. Um, And the fact is they have to trust a group, you know, in Houston, you know, to, 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 pretty much keep them, keep them alive, you know, keep them uh, in orbit, keep them alive, keep their CO2. I mean, they, they have to have this um, tremendous amount of trust for the team down there that either, either they've never met or they have met maybe once or twice, but like, cause there's a huge group working for them for a common goal. Exactly. And it takes, yes, like you said, it takes a lot of trust on their end because obviously I keep saying obviously, but it's really not obvious is that a Just lot of people, obvious out there. It's your a, world. a lot of people in mission control, like a a lot of us are younger. Like if, if you were to look at mission control, most of the flight controllers are in their mid twenties to late twenties into the early thirties. Like we're not talking about people who've been at NASA for like, yeah, you know, like 65 year olds, yeah. chain smoking heaters. <laughs> like, Oh, I remember they're, Apollo 13 yeah. problem. You think this is a problem? You know, they're pocket protectors yeah. and they're like the thick ver- brim glasses. So pretty much every 1950s movie you think about NASA, those people. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, with a buzz cut. It does not look like that nowadays. It's very diverse and it, we're, we're all very young, which makes it a lot of fun too. Yeah. A lot of, it's, there's a feel of, feel of camaraderie and teamwork. Is there a gap, a generation gap between, I guess the, you know, the people when you started, cause I know in the oil field, there's, there's, there was, there's a gap. We call it the great crew change. You mm-hmm. know, that's when the, when the, how the gray, the silver hair is gray, whatever you want to call them. They left and there's a gap. There's like a 15 to 20 year gap between the next block of people that are uh, below them. Is, are you, do you see the same stuff at NASA? I wouldn't necessarily say so. I would just say that in mission control, you just have a lot of younger people because it is a lot of shift work. You're working nights and weekends and it just takes a lot of energy and flexibility with your time. And at some point, a lot of flight controllers end up moving on into more uh, nine to five type jobs where they're not being asked to turn around a product in, you know, one to two days, they, they're given more of a, a more regular schedule. So you just see a little bit of that, um, split between mission control and then the other organizations okay. like the program office or the engineering directorates, you'll just see just a younger demographic in mission control. And we talked about demographics too, and we're seeing we're seeing it change in the eight years that you've been there. I mean, what and we're seeing it change also in the oil field where it goes from you know, the dinosaurs. You know, this is how we've always done it. You know, like you know, the, you know, the, the you know the white the white guys with shirts and ties and like pocket protect. This is how we've always done it. And now you're seeing much more. You know, you're seeing much more diverse. You're seeing like new ideas come out, new technologies coming out, which is kind of breathing this pulse of life in the oil and gas industry. Is and you're seeing that kind of too over at NASA, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I definitely have seen it personally myself. Um, 
the old stereotype of a flight director is that steely eyed missile, like, you know, yeah, just it's, it's the really ri- focused. It's, it's the rim glasses. With the, yeah. Yeah. But the, the guy that's going to yell at you if you mess up, like the yeah. guy that's going to, um, in, that's intimidating. You, you have that f- level of intimidation by them that, you know, they'll disapprove or that you have to like do something to gain their trust. Yeah. Um, and the culture has changed and we've got, we had this pool of flight controllers that came more and more diverse over time. And most flight directors who lead mission control have now become more diverse. And you're seeing more diversity in the flight directors that are being selected, uh, skin color, age, um, a little bit of like the differences in their background. And I, I feel a change of more compassionate leadership, more of a empowering leadership yes. where they're wanting you to lead them. Give, give them the information they need to make the decision. Give some recommendation. Yeah, make my job easier. Make Yeah, make my job easier. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I want you to tell me what the team needs to do. I didn't hire you to babysit you. I want, yeah, it's, it's, it's empowerment. I think, I think you get the best results on any, whether it's, you know, flight control whether it's, or anywhere in, in, in any industry. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think we've always, we have the foundations of flight control and I, I'm not going to recite them all because I don't actually have them all memorized, but I, a lot of the, I know someone, someone from someone, work is going to listen to this and be like, me, wow, Sophia. Dr. NASA is a huge <laughs> fan of the show. Um, right. But we have these stone tablets of mission control and, uh, their behaviors that are super important for the success of the team in mission control that is there to support the mission, whether that's a launch, um, a docking or ma- routine operations of just living and supporting the astronauts in their day-to-day operations. And that hasn't changed. And I think it just goes to show that you can live your foundations, but have a different type of leadership. Not all leadership has to look the same. And, um, you know, what may have worked 20 years ago with a leader that's more likely to demand respect and, and enforce trust through a more of a fear mentality or more of like a it's a military idea so it's more of a you don't talk you don't talk to your superiors that Mm -hmm. way if they chew your ass you got to sit there and take it you know because it's got to do my time and also if i feel like now you're right though there's there's that doesn't fly anymore yeah and that's a great point is that a lot of the the origin story of mission control is from a lot of foundations from the military um and some borrowed like our we borrowed training techniques for how to operate in mission control and how we communicate with the astronauts and just the communication we have with each other um, is very military. Like it has all that origin with it, but you see it evolving and changing over time, but the foundations are still there and the standards are still very high. We're still expected to be very competent in our jobs, be very accountable for what we do. We're expected to be um, team leaders and followers. We're expecting to, um, you know, have a lot of discipline, like all of that still exists. And I don't think the standards have fallen at all, despite seeing these shifts and changes in the way the teams be, are being led. Evolving. Yes. Is that, that's, that's gotta be so exciting, uh, for the, for the groups there, for you, for, for everyone there, just kind of, it's like, okay, this is kind of a, this is kind of more of a, we're, we're more, we're jiving now. Like I can, I, if I see a problem, I can bring it up to my superior and I know I'm not going to get yelled at or like, oh, you gotta do this. You know, like it's, it's more of a, a welcoming opening dialogue type of a team. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's another thing I've, I've seen a lot is if you have a leader that isn't going to, like you said, yell at you, if you made a mistake, you're more likely to admit that you made a mistake. And sometimes, you know, when you're working in a critical environment like space, 
you need to know about mistakes as soon as possible. Right, right. So give me this, a day in the life of Sophia. I mean, because seriously, because right now, I think you do probably a lot of stuff that you're probably not bringing up because it's probably day-to-day stuff that I think is a lot of people, the majority of people of, you know, not just, you know, Americans, but I think global people think it's pretty cool. I mean, you're in the flight room, right? You're, you're looking at the big screen, kind of like in the movies and all that stuff, and you're probably dealing this and doing, doing like the DJ stuff behind the booth. So tell me, man, so give me some cool stuff. Like that's like every day to you. That's someone that you're talking like at the street, like, Oh my gosh, you, you talk to the astronauts. Like, tell me, like, give me a day in the life of you. So honestly, it really depends. My days at my desk versus my days in mission control are very different. So if you're asking about a day in mission, which one, which one, which one you want to talk about? Um, let's start with mission control first. Okay. So a day in mission control depends on what is actually happening that day. So, um, but more or less it's the same. We have a mission objective for that day, whether it's supporting the tasks on the timeline, because the role of the international space station is research. It's, it is a space, it's a lab in space. Okay. So we, our mission is to support the science being done on board the space. What type of research is being done up there? All sorts of research. We're talking about stem cell research, research on um, biology, how your eyes change in space, how the muscles respond to microgravity. We're testing out new equipment to help support us move further into the moon and Mars and help um, move our mission forward into deeper space. So it's like technology demonstration, biological changes. And then we also do earth science research. We have like um, antennas and different type of research. uh, sensors and equipment on the outside of space station that's looking both out into deeper space and then back at earth. And we're looking at how our climate is changing. Like there's a lot of different aspects of research are being touched on at the international space station. And every, every cargo vehicle brings up new types of science. And so it's ever changing what types of science is being done on board um, you know, we've done DNA sequencing on board. We've done, uh, there's just all sorts of things that are happening on board that impact us here on earth and then also impact the future of where we're headed with NASA. I, f- I love hearing about this, by the way, the, the, the fact that, you know, they're, they're up there, you're doing the, the, the tests on the, the biological structure of muscles and eyes, whatever that, whatever that is for how long in space, whatever. And the fact is like, I love hearing the fact that, you know, to the moon, Mars and beyond, like the, the fact that there's that, that, that goal of, of continue the, the, the final frontier, if you right. will. Um, and I, I just, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think, um, it's an, it's a thing that's changing in our industry is that the international space station has been around for 20 years and it's been in development even longer. Right. So the name international space station and, and people who've been working on it has been 30 plus years. And, there's been a lot of focus on the International Space Station. And we're seeing a transition now with Artemis program, which is our latest program, which is supported by Orion, um, SLS, Gateway, and then contracts that we have with SpaceX. um, And other contracts are out in competition still today to help support us get to the moon. So Artemis is our our mission to get boots back on the moon. Um, You know, we're and what's the po- what's the yeah. point? What's the, what's the goal of that to bring to send someone else to the moon? I mean, obviously, like, I hope no one's <laughs> out there like idiot. It's NASA. No, but seriously, like, what 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 would be the objective of bringing people? So, to the moon? a lot you're gonna get a different answer from different people, That's fine. of course, right? And so some people will tell you answers like it's imperative to 
take our species beyond the earth and to find ways to inhabit other planets for the survival of our species. You know, some people can really make that, make that, um, do you have those style of conversations around the water cooler? Like, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm being, I'm being serious. I think those conversations are, are awesome. Like, like, do you, so you have people kind of there on the team. It's like, oh, this is to, to, to. Yeah, you should come to our happy hours. To benefit. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd rock it at your happy hours. I didn't even mean to do that. And you really rock it. it. Yeah, yeah. Rock it, really rock did. it. Anyway, yeah. but I think it's so cool having these conversations. Like, oh, I'm doing it because I just, you know, I, I love this. I'm doing it to further, you know, the, you know, the human, you know, race, like to, you know, infinity and beyond, you know, that's, that's a lot here, but like, it, it's kind of cool how it's like, there's so many different, I feel like the, like so many different passions are bringing people together for the common goal at, at, at exactly. NASA. Yeah. Some people want to do it just because they, when they were young, they saw shuttle launches and they saw the movie space camp, the movie space camp. 1983. Yes. For me, it was Apollo 13. For others, it's Armageddon. Whatever floats your boat. <laughs> Only gas industry, it's Armageddon. Because yeah. they just send a bunch of roughnecks up there. Oh, man, you got to drill a hole in that ass for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. See, everyone's got their own perspective and which which movie inspired them the most. Yeah. But, you know, I think for, for some people, like for me, one of the things that I think is important is, you know, us pushing us into further realms that we haven't done. Like we're not just going back to the moon. We want to go to the moon and build a base on the moon and have continuous inhabitation of the moon. And then we want to go and take the technology that we've tested on the moon and then take that to Mars. Are you all about the terraforming idea? (laughs) I mean, yes. I mean, there's a lot of science behind it and there's. Uh, No, I've seen pictures. It's like five years, 10 years. So (laughs) that's my science. I just look (laughs) at pictures like, well, it's easy to do. See five years. So. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research being done. Like you ask about research is being done on the space station. We're learning how to grow vegetation in space. How do we, how do you grow lettuce in space? How do you grow a tomato in space? Like, how does that work when, like, how does the, how do you get the plant the respond to- and like water in the soil? And like, how do you get it to produce and how do you do it in a reliable way so that you can feed the astronauts? Because they may need to be self-sufficient when it comes to food. We're not going to be, we may not want to be spent sending food back and forth right. from earth. Maybe we should, like you said, terraform and like find a way to like till the land and, and feed our astronauts so that they can have a wholesome diet. But we need to know how to do that right? Uh, in order to do that. And then what you find is as a byproduct of doing that research, you find applications that help us here. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't the initial intention, but then you find out, wow, this thing that we found out that helps us do this thing on the moon or Mars has an application here that can in- increase producti- uh, productivity in agriculture. Right. These, this is the value of going to space. So it's, 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 it's taking these, these, these space objectives, these space missions and actually applying to, to civilian life, you know, kind of like, uh, like the, was it the Garmin was a uh, military Thing, right. You know what I mean? Ways. I use Ways now, but to think that Ways's great grandfather was a <laughs> you know Scud missile. You know right. who knows? But I mean, the fact that it's able to transfer it to the to the the Earth life, if you will, is uh, yeah. is, is pretty fascinating. So so what is what is your passion about? Uh, is is it learning something new? Is it the fact? That you, so you talked about pushing the human race beyond into other realms. The days of oil field workers wasting countless hours lost, searching for pump jacks and well pads in a maze of unmapped lease roads are over. Well Site Navigator, the most downloaded oil field mobile app ever, now offers turn-by-turn directions to over one million wells through lease road navigation technology. We've mapped tens of thousands of miles of lease roads you can't find anywhere else, and we're always adding more. 
With our reliable directions, oil field workers can drive right to the well site and share custom routes and locations and get more done each day. Try Wellsite Navigator for free and get a $10 Amazon gift card for every friend you send us. Don't get lost. Get Wellsite Navigator. For me, it's, I think what I got out of NASA when I was young was just the idea of moving into this this area that I looked at at the night sky when I was young, like to actually have literally I work with astronauts that are up in space, like, and that inspired me to pursue technology, engineering, math, and these fields that are difficult. And whether I hadn't ended up at NASA or not, I, it spurred curiosity. It spurred an interest in, in fields that can help us here on yeah. earth. And so there is a side of inspiration I think is really important and also unity. I feel like everyone, you know, maybe everyone's a bold statement, but it feels like everyone can unite behind the goals of NASA, behind the goals of going further into space. Yeah, I don't feel it. First off, I don't feel like you meet people that are like anti-NASA. <laughs> right. You know, all those, I mean, those I don't astronauts. Know. Maybe there are flat earthers who just. <laughs> what are your, okay. <laughs> are there any flat earthers that work at NASA? Not to my knowledge, but obviously I don't know everyone. Okay. We got to dig into this. This, yeah. this is going to be an investigative <laughs> podcast. It's right. like a true crimes thing. We're going to start know. interviewing flat earthers. What are your thoughts on flat earthers? I flat think. Flat earthers. Flat earthers. You know, like everything, it's always good to have a. An, a difference a, of opinion. A difference of opinion. And I love it, how political you're being right now. <laughs> well, I respect their opinion to disagree with science. There's a there's an interesting documentary I watched on Netflix about um, flat earthers, and I don't think I had an opinion before. Like, Is that I how was, they proved with that thirteen, and like <laughs> proved that the Earth was like right. curved. And it was just like really cool. I, I would say it's really cool that they're actually out there doing science experiments and then reproving that the Earth is round. But like, but then they keep scientists. doing. Then they keep doing more experiences, <laughs> yes. and it keeps proving that the Earth is this way. Yeah, but I mean, they're using this, uh, attempting to use a scientific method, and they're. Uh, attempting to um use critical thinking and obviously they're somehow missing the point but so do you have so you pretty much you have to say that the earth is uh round to like on any podcast or in the media you can't say the earth is flat i respect that yeah yeah respect that's a little hush hush right there. <laughs> yes so so does space scare you it terrifies me it does me too like i, I does me too so does english um Obviously, grammar, I can't say it, but space is, is, is terrifying. It really is. It really is. I mean, it's a very dangerous place to be. Even with, have you heard of the Inspiration 4 crew that launched uh, last week? It was an all-civilian flight on. Was that last week? On Was it uh, space? Uh, was mm, it no, it was a SpaceX Musk? vehicle, yeah. What? No. Yeah, yeah. So all it was a full civilian flight. So yeah. all four of them were first time. So, yeah. And none of them have previous flight experience um, in the sense of none of them have been in space before. And um, they weren't astronauts. They weren't like mil uh, government um, employees. They were just civilians. Civilians, yeah. And some rich um, folk. No. Yeah, and, and actually, they weren't. Wasn't there one that was extremely the, wealthy? The main guy, yeah, Isaac Min. He is the one who funded the other three seats, I believe. Okay, okay. And the others were just your regular person. Like one of them was a nurse at St. Jude's. It okay. was, um, the, it was a sweepstakes type event where, you know, you could donate some money and, um, put your name to St. Jude and like your name would go in a hat. And so for one of the seats, 
um, that sweepstakes was who ended up in that seat. And so that was the generosity seat. And then you had a seat for, um, um, I think it was curious. I don't remember what the other one was like curiosity or like, um, she was an entrepreneur. She made space art. And so she had to like go viral with her business. And so, um, she was selected because of that and like her passion for space. And then the third was a nurse at St. Jude who actually had been a patient at St. Jude when she was young. Oh, wow. Okay. And so um, it was interesting because Netflix had a documentary with SpaceX um, about these um, four people that were selected for this all civilian mission. And it was really interesting to see that they were all so excited to go to space. And then you could see slowly throughout the documentary, the realization of the dangers of space yeah. and like not just space, but the launch and the landing as well. I mean, we've had people in the past die on shuttle flights in both directions. Um, so um, uh, it doesn't come without risk. And then once you're up there, you know, anything could go wrong. What part about space scares you? Uh, the vast darkness of space. Isn't and, it? Yeah. I mean, so here's the deal. Like whenever, like, you know, as a kid, you start thinking about that, even as an adult, you know, I've done a lot of, you know, reflect on that, you know, because, you know, you watch, you know, cosmos or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then you start thinking about that, like, you know, just how vast it is and how we're very, very small compared to the universe. Like we're, do you like, do you like hearing that? Do you like knowing that? I don't think I think about it very often, but when I do think about it, I think it puts life in perspective. Right. Uh, life is, you know, we we're always reminded about how life is so precious, but then you also think about the span of time that has existed before us and after us. And then we're like, wow, our life is so insignificant. Yeah. And so like ping ponging between the two of like every life is so precious. And then all of our lives are so insignificant is like a real, like it's, it's, mental it's, it's weird. wrestle of just like going through both. Cause I think both are completely true. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it, it just helps you put into perspective just life in, in both ways. I think you can look at life is so precious and take every moment and make it important. And then also when you think about how insignificant you are in the massive timeline of life. Yeah. Not even life, but the universe. It helps you kind of calm down of just like, well, what I do doesn't really matter. Like I can just. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. If you, <laughs> I mean, that is that is true, though. I mean, you start putting on the, the, the timeline, the, the vast timeline where it's like. I don't think a lot of the human mind can even grasp the timelines right. of, of, you know, you know, the big bang and all that stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just very fascinating. So who, what kind of uh, scientists or astronomers do you look up to um, currently? Or do you, do you look up to them? Like, who are your role models? I, <laughs> I feel like I, uh, my role models in my life are more the people in my life that I interact with more frequently that I have that model behavior that I find really admirable that okay. I, I will want to emulate. I don't think I've ever had that like mentality of like, Oh, there's this like certain scientist or certain, even like as a kid, I didn't really have like a favorite celebrity okay. or anything. I was very much more like I would see people in my life and I would see the characteristics that they had. Um, and I would really admire them. And I think, the people that I, I work with actually are probably some of my like role models that I would actually say I have. You know, there's some flight directors that I really look up to and um, the way that they lead and the skills that they have. It's something you just respect. You're like, I, there's I, just I like really level of respect. Yeah. And the astronauts, I would say, are like some of my heroes. Like some of them really just the way they emulate them, like this sense of. I don't know how to explain it. They are just as amazing as you imagine. It's like the. Yeah, it's like a the model human being, right? Like, know? how how are you actually this perfect? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Right. And it's just like, I don't, um, I don't necessarily see myself wanting to be them, but like you, you start to like, you want to be around them. You want to be around them. You kind of notice the things that they do and you're like, wow, I should really figure out how to do that too. Or things like that. And so and you wonder like, did they learn that or that's something they were trained right. or something they picked up along their career? Right. I mean, it's, or are it's, they it's, inherently yeah, yeah. that way, that natured. And yeah, I think, um, those are the people that I would say are like my role models. And then like, um, I would say there are some entrepreneurs I really admire. Um, so, uh, I think I've been thinking a lot about culture at work. Okay. And so, uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix, the way he built his culture, I think back, this is also back to like when I was an entrepreneur back in like 2012 and 2009, I guess he came out with his culture deck on like what the culture of Netflix was going to be. And at that time I had read it and I don't think I had fully grasped the importance of like what he was defining and like how he was setting the culture at Netflix. And um, I ended up like recently I've been working a lot with my management and helping them strategize like how can we shift our culture in a way uh, to be a little bit more innovative um, and combat some of the issues that we've been seeing recently. And I've been going back to that, to some of his lessons and his pitches. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot of really good stuff here. So if anyone out there is listening and wants to learn about Netflix and their culture deck, just Google it and read through it. And I think they have the, like the bottom line on their actual Netflix uh, jobs page like what their culture is and like the standards that they hold and how they hold people accountable and um, how they hire. And I think it just really encapsulates a lot of really strong values I've gained over the years. And so I think that's a big one. Um, I really look up to um, creativity is a really big, important yeah. part of my life. I make art on the side. It's one of my major hobbies. What kind of art is it? Is it oil? Is it sculpture? What? Um, acrylics mostly. Okay. Um, but I also do some oils and watercolor. What, what is the theme of your the theme? of your art? It's still evolving. I only started painting about six years ago, okay. seven years ago when I um, when I was young in my NASA career. Um, I didn't really have a lot of friends, and really my my way to fill up my time was just spend a lot of time with my paint and my canvases. Um, really I, I did a lot of cityscapes, a lot of, um, I did a lot of cityscapes. I've done a lot of landscapes as well. And I'm trying to move a little bit more abstract impressionistic in some of my paintings and less realism. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a way for me to exercise that part of my mind. And so there's a, a guy who has a podcast, his name is Chase Jarvis and he has a podcast called creative live. Okay. And he talks a lot about creativity and how it's inherent within all of us and how to like harness it and turn it into a practice. I actually read something, I think uh, it was yesterday and it was, it was pretty much hey, look, it, 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 the importance of creativity. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like whether you're, you're taking a picture of something, you know, or whether you're drawing something or whether you're making a meal or something like that, like be creative with it, you know, be inspired, make it your, I mean, look, a mundane task of, you know, making a meal or, you know, taking a picture and all this stuff is, is mundane, but there, there, there's a way to, to spend a little more time with it and to kind of, you know, put some of your personality into that and mm -hmm. kind of like whether, whether you take a picture, print it out, touch it, you know, whether you, you do something like a, a painting, like let it do it, let it dry and see it feel, run your fingers. Like, cause it, there's a sense of a accomplishment in, in that. And also it does strike that sense of a, a being, staying creative. Yeah. Cause I think people like being creative. I think um, th there's a point in our childhood where somehow creativity just doesn't get valued the way 
it should. Yeah. It kind of like gets stamped out of people. I think it might be our education system that's very like. Well, look at children. Look at children uh, come up with you know. You look at kids, you know, what does that cloud look like? They'll come up with 75 different things. You ask an adult, they're like, I don't know, a dragon. Exactly. Like they'll have like maybe one thing to say. Yeah. And that's right. That That's true. There is a sense of creativeness and, and, and just kind of thinking outside the box. It's kind of like starts getting kind of muffled a little bit. Right. You you, you start being told how life should be. You yeah. get start being told, you know, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And there's, uh, I, I guess, shame like of, you know, Am I weird for what I think might be like yeah. that I'm seeing I'm here, into, that yeah. like the angle that I see this from? Um, and I think, yeah, I think part of our education system is a part of it. It's very focused on right and wrong answers. It's focused on um, uh, memorization. facts, memorization, things like that. And it wasn't until I started painting that I started learning a lot more about creativity um, I think I touched on it in like the startup stuff and there was like a lot of push yeah. on like design and human centered design and just like being open-minded, but I don't think I really started reading about creativity and the research has been done on creativity and things like that until I started painting and wanting to be more creative. Um, because I think I, when I first started painting, I started painting like replicas. Like I wanted to take someone else's painting and like paint the same exact okay. thing. And I think that's okay for like learning, right? Like just getting like the motor skills yeah. and like figuring out like how to like yeah. mix a certain color. But if you want to find your own style, you have to start being comfortable with, wait, who am I really? And what is my natural style if I don't look at anything else? It's interesting because you said you don't listen to other podcasts. <laughs> and I actually thought about that because it's like, how how do you make your own podcast unique when you're being influenced constantly by other people's work? I just, and, and that's the thing too, you know, creativity, like, you know, for example, I'll, I'll film funny commercials for, you know, whether it's a, a customer or whether it's just, you know, Evelyn and me doing the kitty cat queen thing or wh whatever it is. And that it just, it's, it's one of those things that I, I, you can't have someone who's creative be like, okay, clock in at nine to be creative, clock out at five, take an hour lunch. That's your creative. You know what I mean? Like right. you, you can't do that. To me, it's just kind of like one of those things is like, what am I into? You know, what do I dig? And I didn't find my own, you know, stride or my own thing actually until I was forced to be, a, I mean, I always grew up, you know, doing art and all that, like, you know, theater and all that stuff. I know you probably recognize me from Basketball Diaries and the Dota Capital Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> not a big deal. Any days of our lives. But that's not a big, we're not here about talking about me. But the thing is though, it's like, I always find like, you know, when I started doing this podcast, I was like, okay, well, I think people want to hear this. I, I think people want to hear these five questions about the industry. I think I'm going to stick to this script. After a while, I realized that got boring. I didn't get like, it got to a point where it's like, if I don't give a shit about it, then I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to pursue it. I'm not going to keep doing this. And so when I started kind of trust myself to like, and I still like, I'm still uncomfortable behind the microphone. But when I found myself kind of like, man, JP, push the envelope, you know, kind of be yourself, you know, ask these, you know, just like, kind of just like go with it. Trust yourself that you can like, you know, you can have a conversation with someone for an hour and just talk about what you want to. Like, I want to, you know, like, I, that side of it, it's just, it's just really not giving a shit what a lot of people think and just kind of just finding your groove as long as you're not hurting anyone, as long as right. you're kind of lifting people up. I think you kind of find your stride in that, you know, and that's kind of, that's kind of where I find my creativeness. It's like, man, it's, it's, I don't want to do this for someone else. I kind of want to do this because I dig it. If I'm helping others out and I'm connecting people, like I'm liking this, you know, I'm digging yeah. it. I'm and digging I, it. and I love that you, you shared that because for, for myself, going back to my work at NASA, you know, I, when I started at NASA, we didn't actually talk about my transition, but when I actually started at NASA, I was, it, it felt like I was the, um, and I think it, at the time it was true. I was the only one who was hired that didn't have previous internship experience at NASA. Like I hadn't, um, 
been exposed to operations or even the industry specifically. I had done research and, you know, did my startup, but I was coming in so um, unique in my background compared to the rest. I mean, I did have the aerospace engineering background, but I didn't have the experience the rest had. Yeah. And I definitely had this imposter syndrome. I think at the beginning, I was really trying to be like others. I was trying to fake it till you made it. I was trying to be like, oh, wow, this person's like really smart and is able to do these things. And I don't have that skill. And I was so focused on what they were good at and that what I was lacking, I forgot like what I was really good at. And I didn't remember to capitalize that on that until a couple years in actually, Yeah, which was like, it was actually given the fact that I spent my first three years training to be a flight controller. <laughs> it was okay. Like, you know, you're trying to get cookie cutter, like get like the certification to actually sit in mission control. But once I got that certification, it was like, wow, like I really need to start being myself. <laughs> like I really need to figure out like, how do I do this job while also being me? It's funner. It funner. See, <laughs> it's, it's more fun that way to, to, to kind of walk in a room and kind of be yourself and be co- confident and like, you know, I can contribute this. I can't contribute that much of that. That's your role. Like, right. I, I can't do those equations. Like you're you're, you're always going to be better at this than me. And that's a hundred percent. Okay. Because my strength is this other thing. And I'm and, glad you're better. So I don't have to do it. Right. Or I can always ask you. For your opinion on this thing, even if it's, you know, my responsibility right. to do this and I, you know, don't feel as confident, I can go to you and ask for help, right? I don't have to be the expert on everything. I don't have to be um, this like super well-rounded expert in, you know, every single thing. My job is to be the best version of myself. Yeah. So what is my strength that I can bring? What is it that I'm good at? And I, I've actually learned in the last, maybe from this conversation, you can tell is like mentorship and like, um, how teams work and like organizational structures. Like that's the thing that I actually have a lot of interest in. And I also have like, I think an innate um, curiosity for, and like, I love that type of work and some people hate it. And I would love to like sit and like um, strategize and talk through a way that we can, you know, make a process better, how we can um, utilize the teammates better or how to mentor our new hires better and train them faster. Right. Those types of questions excite me a lot. I love the, work in mission control, but I also love all of that other work that helps enable my coworkers yeah. who are far more passionate about the nitty gritty, like how is this bolt turn and how do I get it? Yeah. Like, right. We all have different passions and it took me a long time to figure out that my, I have a different skill set, and that is super crucial because if we were all the same, no one would be able to do that and bring that perspective. Right. Right. So I actually probably think also having that, that, that certain spark of creativity or that certain, uh, uh, you know, piece of creativity would, would make a, whether you're an engineer, whether you're, whether you're a problem solver, whether you're a mentor or something like that, or whether you're even you're a party planner, you know, like I feel like that's ounce of creativity or even that even a little bit. I mean, look, I'm not, you know, people are out there, they think of creativity is like, well, man, I can't, I can't paint a, you know, a mural. I can't do that. But that's, it's, it's, that's the, it's not, the, it's not that you have to have some spark of creativity. Yeah. And that's just even whether it's, you know, preparing a meal for your friends or whether that, whatever that is, or sending stuff up to, to space to, to make you a, a kind of attack problems or attack challenges in, in unique ways that have never been done before. Yeah. And I think, um, people don't realize when they're being creative. Like yeah. I think some people are creative and they don't realize they're do- literally doing it. You're right. I've seen people on my team tell me that they're not creative and I've seen them do something creative and I'm like, wow, that was pretty creative. You lied and you're a liar. <laughs> yeah. And you're a liar. You no, lied to creative, me. But you lied to me. You lied to me. <laughs> what would be a, um, what would be a, what would be a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a, a okay. 
So everyone hears about NASA, you know, I hear about NASA, you know, you, you think one thing. Else, but what was kind of a, a stereotype about NASA that you could disprove? Be like, yeah, it's not really like that. Or it is like that. Or, hey, this is actually a component that not a lot of people know about, which makes it really cool. Um, I would say working at NASA is great, but it's also kind of like working any other job. There are... People think you're going to work at NASA and you're going to be surrounded by exceptional players everywhere you look. And we do have really great right. teams. But just like anywhere else, you have personalities. You have different people with, you know, their own different ways of doing things. Or you have different levels of performers. You still have your top performers. And, like, not everyone is the same. And so in some ways, it is literally like any other workplace where you're having to work with the same dynamics, the same issues you would anywhere else. So even though it is a great job, the teams are really great. The people are really great. We still have the same struggles that other people have right. just because we're NASA and we're doing really challenging thing. Do things doesn't mean we have it all figured out on how to like yeah. navigate this whole changing world. We're having, we're, we have a massive change in our industry. You may or may not know, um, the commercialization of space. We have a bunch of private companies yeah. coming online and how do, how do we associate with them how do we interact with them? How do we support them? How do we, how, where do we fit in that big, that picture? Right. These are some really big questions. What to is ask. that realm kind of like now with, with you? It seemed like all this, this, this commercial or privatization of space kind of happened. I mean, I may be way wrong, you know what I mean? But it kind of seemed like it happened kind of all of a sudden, you know, this, this, the race to space kind of happened with all these, you know, companies kind of relatively around the same time. Um, but I'm sure obviously with space travel, I'm sure it's years and years and years and years and years of planning. But for the for the common folk out there, including myself, it seemed like it happened kind of at, at a, a little window. Right. So, I mean, um, this has been ongoing since the end of the shuttle days. Um, there was a conversation of how we were going to get astronauts to the International Space Station. And so... There was someone at headquarters, I don't remember their name, somebody who pushed really hard for commercialization and having commercial partners providing the service of bringing astronauts from the U.S. soil to the International Space Station. And I think that was something that's been working in the background for a long time. And it wasn't until 2020 when we actually had done the first launch. It was during COVID. I think a lot of people tuned in. I tuned in, yeah. 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 And... Um, you know, it seemed very all of a sudden, but this had been in the works for a f almost a full decade. My team was involved in actually uh, rerouting power lines and updating the space station to support the integration of SpaceX crew vehicles to the space station. I mean, this is something that took a wow. long time. And so, you know, it seems all of a sudden, but there was an investment by the uh, government in commercialization, having commercial providers provide the service to 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 us the government and provide the service of sending astronauts from uh u.s soil to space and so since then we've seen um the success there and that was you know it's worked very well how else do we leverage the commercialization there are people out there who are starting businesses that have a lot of experience in the space industry starting up companies you have companies like axiom uh nanoracks are two that i've uh, worked with recently. You've also got um, Blue Origin, SpaceX, and then obviously some of the more traditional contractors you have as well, like Lidos. 
and and um i, I yeah. may be uh, not yeah sure i am uh look i'm i pretend to i pretend like i don't know what's going on just to, so i help the listeners yes, out not me of course, of course. <laughs> What is the point? I mean, what is the point of the, the of of these uh, the, the commercial side of things, the private side of things, just kind of going up for a quick dip and come back come back down? I mean, is is there is, is there a draw to that besides the whole uh, you know the human component, the human spirit of like we can do this, or is it or is it, or is it is they it- all have very different goals? Really? Yeah. Some of them want to eventually do things like mine asteroids. Some of them want to have space hotels or service for people to experience space on a more casual level. Like, Wait a minute, space hotels? Yes. I mean, these are our, the long-term visions that people have for how they can monetize and utilize space. I mean, one day we will be the Jetsons, right? <laughs> I just think it's so fun. I can only imagine, obviously the meeting went, did go down. I can only imagine the meeting. It's like, I got a plan. What's the plan? <laughs> Hotel, in, a lazy river in space. <laughs> All right, here's... $12 billion, do it. Like I can only imagine like that conversation. Right. But our job, what we're doing is we're not funding that end goal, but we're helping them along the ways because they're going to provide us smaller services that help build up their own technologies for their Is there a sharing? Is there a sharing of best practices and stuff like that? When it comes down to, when it comes down to, I guess, hey, look, you know, we're noticing this type of stuff, this type of, you know, skin, whatever. Is there type, is there like cross, like, hey, look, you know, I know that, you, you know, you were here, you're here, you're here, we're NASA. Like, let's kind of talk about it, let's learn. That way you can kind of improve the, the, the final frontier just a little bit more. Is that, is that, are those conversations happening or is it more siloed? Um, it's a little bit siloed. I mean, there's, um, every team is doing things differently. And obviously we want some of that because we want them to innovate and do things their own way. Um, but there are the foundations that we have in mission control and I, and the way we do training and people are borrowing the way that we, that we, um, operate and how we've been doing training and operations for the last. Well, Ryan, why reinvent the wheel though? Yeah. You know what so, I mean? so some of that, some of that is easily transferable. And like I said, a, a lot of the people who are working at these new organizations are not like, t- they're not, they're 20 year olds. Are they, these, are they poached? Is there a lot of poaching? Yes. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean yeah. I think, I think when a new industry comes in, not a new industry, but a new, a new, yeah, of course, I mean, why, why train when you can bring someone over that's yeah. been doing it for a long time? Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, that, happen, that happens. And you know, you see that in Silicon Valley, whenever you have a new startup come yep. in that has a lot of momentum and heat behind it, it's going to poach people. And I think that's just normal in any industry. And so, you know, you do see a transfer of people happening, whether that's at the high level, like these are former NASA people who have now started their own ventures with, um, you know, other, other investors. And then you have people at, you know, the worker level being poached and moving yeah. over. And it's actually a really exciting time. And I, I a hundred percent support this like emergence of commercialization. It's exciting. Cause I didn't even anticipate this. Not that I'm, you know, got my, um, uh, you know, looking glass or like that. Lenses, view. What, what's it called? Little, um, Len- I don't know, whatever <laughs> I know, but I'm like, you know, I don't yeah. want to stop the conversation, but yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, I, not that I can predict the future, but you know, it's sometimes you see some trends and I did not expect the boom that we're seeing right now. That's in gotta terms. be so exciting. Not just, for, not just for you in the, in the, in the, in the space industry, but, but anyone, also anyone's for the a human space race, yeah. for the human race. It just seems it seems like uh, this is definitely a chapter in in in, in the human race's uh, time period where you, we're having race, uh, space races. 
pretty much. Right. But I won't even say it's competition. I mean, you see some competition, but. I'm not right? saying in a bad way. No, no, no. But like, there's a lot of support. You know what I mean? Like everyone, I, what I sense is anyone who works at any of these other commercial companies wants the other companies to succeed yeah. because the more robust community we have, the healthier it's going to yeah. be. Yep. And so even though, yes, I think you could call it a race. I think a lot of people are just in like that work at these organizations are just space fans and they want to see more people in space. They want to see more cool stuff happening in space. They want to do work that is different and new and important. So it's just a really exciting time and a, an interesting place to be in. In my career, kind of like in this, I'm in my early 30s and just kind of seeing how things are changing and seeing where I can contribute and what piece I can play in that bigger puzzle. So if there's a role right now at NASA, okay, can't say astronaut. If there's a role right now at, at NASA that you're like, you know, I, I'd be so interested in do this. I'd be so curious about this. I, I would love to sit in this role, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, again, we're not doing the five-year thing, but whether it's like, I would love to sit in this role and kind of, and just experience what it's like, what, what role would that be? What in your, in your, what top three roles in your opinion would, are the coolest spots at NASA? The coolest spots, honestly, you I would, can't say astronaut. That's no, no, no. I'm not going to say astronaut. Honestly, working in operations, you get to like where I'm at right now is sitting in mission control. I would say a lot of people would say that is like the, one of the coolest positions you have. Uh, give me, give me, give me, walk me through mission control. Give me the feeling of mission yes. control. How many people are like, what do you, please. We have around, you know, on, depending on what shift you're on around 20 people in there, any given time working the, you know, different consoles that we have. We have different consoles that are supporting or positions that are supporting um, the power systems or, elect, um, or life support systems, um, navigation of the International Space Station. So everyone's got their own little role that they're playing. And I think like I was saying, uh, I started saying earlier, it depends on what's happening on that specific day. Um, I'm certified to birth or dock uh, cargo vehicles. So when I'm in mission control on a day like that, it's very serious. You have a... So wait, what does that mean you're certified to birth or dock? That means I'm certified to sit in mission control, talk to the flight director, send commands to the space station. So like actually actuate hardware on board. So you're literally communicating to ISS. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're, we're sending commands from Houston that are being sent up to the space station and moving things on board the space station. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yes. And so it takes a lot of training. Um, and that certification takes a lot of soft skills and technical skills mixed together. But the, yeah, but a day on a, on a birthing day, trying to get a cargo vehicle grabbed by the robotic arm and then maneuvered to the location where it's going to, uh, be attached is very serious because, um, the tone, we have a lot of procedures. We, we need to make sure the comm is crisp and clear and everyone knows what the objective is. The what's crisp and clear? Uh, the communication. Okay. Uh, is crisp and clear so we can really focus on the task at hand and keep the communication loops um, as quiet. Uh, not quiet's not the right word, but. Not as distracting. Yeah, you don't want to have any distractions. So it's very focused. And this is a timeline that um, we've probably been working and simulating a couple of times. So we, we've probably done a couple of training runs through like, how are we actually going to do this? Um, make sure there's no hiccups in our timeline and our plan. Cause there's a lot of coordination between what we have to do with the different systems to get them in the right config to actually attach a cargo vehicle. And, um, it has to happen in a very timely manner to stay on our timeline. And so, yeah, it's very focused. And, you, um, when 
something happens that's, you know, off nominal, uh, really the room stops and listens. Okay. And, that, and that's like our best practice is whenever there's a failure or a problem, the team stops and listens. Stops and huddles and kind of listens. okay, well, let's listen to what's going on. Maybe right. we can chime in. Yeah. Right. Or maybe this impacts me and I need to change what I'm doing yeah. to help support that. Or maybe it impacts the timeline and how things are going to lay out. And so, um, typically we, we, typically we don't have issues, uh, because we've planned everything out, yeah. but the systems can always give us failures along the way. So you never know, um, what can happen. And so the tone of it is very serious and that's typically the case, but, um, you know, we also have some shifts that are like, you're working overnight and there's not much on the timeline. The, the astronauts shift, are asleep. Yeah. And you're there just monitoring your systems. And so a shift like that, you know, you're probably doing some paperwork. You're probably doing some of your regular day job work and you're monitoring your systems. And you may have some small talk with the flight director, your other disciplines. And um, is that just a surreal feeling being in that room? I mean, uh, you know, you, you see that room growing up as a kid. You see that room kind of you see that room like when there's a, you know, yeah, touchdown, whatever, like everyone's like losing their shit going off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, is that still surreal? I would imagine that's got to be such a surreal feeling, like yes. kind of a cool spot to be in no matter what day it is, no matter how bad your day. It's just like I'm here. Yes. It, it, it there's in my opinion, there's never a bad day in mission control okay. in the sense of. You're always going to be learning. You're always going to be in awe of the fact that you're literally sitting in a room that you've dreamt of working in yeah. and it's inspiring and the work you're doing is important. And I don't think the gravity of that, such of your position, like what you're doing is ever lost on you when you're in there. Okay. But I also think that's true because of our training, like our training tr puts us in a position where when you're in that room, you're on, they're like, there's a version of you that just sets on yeah. and you're that person that you know, maybe in the office you fumble over your words, but when you're in that room, your words, you're, you're getting the right words out there and you're crisp and clean with your calm and you may be more shy in your like personal life. But when you're in there, you're, you're, you're leading and you're performing and you're, everything's and you're, purposeful driven, yes. everything, every, every move. Yeah. And so I think you just kind of take your whole persona into another level and you're really just focused. Wow. And I think, like I said, it's a big part of our training. We go through years of simulations where we're put under a lot of pressure. Um, these simulations are joint simulations with other flight controllers, and we're given uh, they're eight to ten hours long. And we're sitting in a room, and we're um, it's a room that looks almost identical to the real mission control right. room, and we're simulating failures that may happen, major cases where you know the entire power system for the space stations falling apart or we're tumbling out of control or a major fire is God. happening and you have to respond and you have to work as a team to resolve the issue. And you know, not all the cases are that crazy. Do you, Some, do you know the crazy cases or one of those things like, Hey, today is going to be a calm day. Whoop. Here's a, here's a onboard fire or something like that. And y'all have to respond. No, we have we have no idea of like what the cases they are that's going to play. We're going to know the timeline, right? right? We're going to know we're simulating a cargo birthing or we're just, we have what we're called um, more like uh, stage ops, which means just like regular everyday type of operation. So it's not like a mission mission, but you have things that need to get done on the timeline. And there are things that may happen to prohibit you from getting that okay. thing done. Uh, we have uh, timelines where we're trying to avoid uh, space debris that might impact the space station. Um, so we have to uh, move out of the way type uh, type simulation. So we know the theme, like we know the timeline that we're going to walk into. We know what's on the timeline, um, whether that's, you know, for me, I might have maintenance cases like uh, I'm switching out one of the 
uh, computer system boxes that we have on board, or I might be uh, clean. Sometimes it's stuff like cleaning out filters and fans. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I know what kind of, you know, cases or not cases, but the timeline events, but the cases can range from things like, oh, this bolt is stuck to a health issue on the astronaut. You could have issues where there's, like I said, an onboard fire or a water leak somewhere with like powered equipment. And you're like, yeah. What am I going to do? There's yeah. water near power. It's not never a good day for that. Um, and so you're really tested on figuring out, okay, what do I do about this? What's the risk? We talk about risk a lot in mission control. How how are we going to actually um, fix this? And what are the risks associated with the different workarounds we can pursue to um, resolve the issue? How do you communicate that effectively to the flight director and persuade them that this is the right option and deliver that in a concise manner that people who are not an expert in your system can understand. Yeah. Can, 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 uh, consume it. Yeah, right. exactly. How, so it seems like those days, I mean, in the flight. Mission control. Mission control. Mission control. Yeah. I know. I'm just testing you out. Make sure you know. Um, it seems like the days of mission control. I mean, even the trainings are very, are very, it's very straight. You said you brought in the persona. You're pretty much the highest, uh, functioning, uh, Sophia of the day. Yes. How do you decompress from that? Cause I would feel at the end, that's just like, Okay, am I, is my back tight? My back's tight. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like how do you how do you personally decompress from that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna uh, underemphasize how stressful it is because it is super stressful. Um, you know, we're uh, people probably don't know this. You usually have to ask the flight director to take a bathroom break, <laughs> so really? you're in the room for like eight to ten hours unless you have a scheduled uh, what we call loss of calm um, LOS, where we don't have calm with the space station, where anyone can leave the room whenever they want because clearly you can't look at any data and there's can't talk to anyone. So you might as well leave and go take a break. Uh, you have to ask permission to take two. Um, and so there's not no lunch break. You're running all day long and the instructors are trying to stress you out. I mean, the point is to get a stress response out of you and show that you can still maintain your composure. So decompressing from a day like that is usually a nap right afterwards. Right. <laughs> nap. Or if it's really bad, me and my, uh, whoever's on my team, because it's a team of us, it's me. If I'm in the front room, I have a back room that's supporting me or vice versa okay. where we're communicating and we're working through a problem together. Um, you know, we'll go for a happy hour and invite a couple of people and just like talk it out and be like, this is what happened today. And just kind of like release vent, it and, vent, and vent, right. um, vent it out. But, um, you know, at some point you do kind of just find a way to shake it off at the end of the day okay. and like move on and just like go to the gym and do your normal evening routine. But yeah, I mean, they're meant to be stressful and like people decompress in different ways. My way is usually a nap followed by a really nice meal. Cause I probably skipped lunch cause I didn't feel like I could eat with that much stress. So, so pretty much, I mean, it's, it's such a unique, cool uh, thing. So it's like, not only are, are y'all, uh, you know, in the same room with the common goal, uh, you're there for different reasons, but most likely you're there because you're, you're following your passion. You're following, you really dig this stuff, but then you're like, oh yeah, I'm here. And now guess what? They're going to be stressing me out. Yes. Like it's, <laughs> it's kind of like one of those things like for people, it's, it's, that's a tough thing to do. Like you're doing it cause you love it, but you're also, you're also being put under a lot of stress and that's tough. That's tough yeah. for a lot of people. And not only that, but you end your simulation and then we do an hour long debrief. Oh, save it for tomorrow, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we do depending on how, how the sim went. Like if it's really bad, like if it was a really bad performance, it might be a delayed debrief. We still do the team debrief yeah. together where the flight director leads us in discussing the major themes of the day. And that might be like a 30 minute debrief. Um, but like the last end where it's just kind of like internal with us and our assigned instructor for our position, 
we'll, we may delay for the next day. But yeah, I mean, it's, but a lot of people will tell you they're excited to go through the certification process because it really shows you what you're capable of. Yeah. Um, I've known people who've started that and I've you said it took three years. Um, you're not doing simulations for three years. There's like a but the process. But yeah, the process. Yeah. Wow. Um, so for our position, it took me three years for my first certification. And then it took like four and a half by the time I got my full like suite. There's like levels of certifications. Okay. You got your backroom certification, the front room certification, the front room, meaning the main mission control room. And then um, we have the instructor certification. So you're in, certified to teach other in, um, okay. flight controllers. So I, I didn't get my full suite of certifications until six years in. Wow. Yeah. That's a road right there. Yeah. So what now? Where, <laughs> so where, what are you, now? where are you going now? So, I mean, you're kind of in the, in the room to be at, I mean, yeah. are, are, like what's, what, where do you want? I mean, don't give me the five year cause we don't do the five year here, but where, where do you, where do you kind of see yourself kind of moving to and where do you, where, where, where are you striving? Yeah. So, um, I, so as I mentioned earlier, I already have my certification for birthing cargo vehicles. Okay. I am currently in my certification process to get my certification to work all the maintenance side. So there are two different positions under the same team. Okay. So one is to actually birth cargo vehicles, which is a completely different. And that's pretty much set. like an ROV claw grabbing. Is that, is that, or is that kind of things like coming together? We that's have, docking. Not, yeah. Docking is like a probe and a drogue and like kind of think of. Yeah. It's like a, a, a fishing, a fishing, a, a fishing ball, tool. ball in a socket. Yeah. It's a fishing tool. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. the oil field of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fishing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the uh, docking. Birthing is, um, and docking is, autonomous. So it's the, you don't have to send commands from, I mean, the process is more automated. Okay. The process for birthing, we're sending commands from Houston to drive bolts and latches to attach the two halves together. And the astronauts have to pressurize the vestibule between the two halves before we can actually ingress and get all the cargo out. So it's, it's a very timeline process. That's and, a, that's a very high risk, high pressure process too. Yeah. It seems like yeah, and there's a there's a lot that could go wrong. Everything from the rendezvous, which is the phase where the cargo vehicle is trying to catch up to the space station for us to actually grab it and then birth it, okay. um, to the actual capture sequence, like you're moving this robotic arm and trying to grab onto this, you know, multi. I've seen enough movies. Yeah, and then actually maneuvering it safely so it doesn't um, uh, impact anything on the way to its final location. Wow. There's a lot of choreography that happens there. So that's an, a certification in itself. And then there's another certification to become a maintenance flight controller. Same name. We're, we're still the OSO team, but it's a different certification. And that's with the skills to safely uh, work through maintenance cases. So, you know, you're having an issue with a, a leaky um, quick disconnect um, connector and all of a sudden it starts leaking water everywhere. What are you going to do about it? Or... Um, right. <laughs> There's no, right. You can't just, um, let all this free water float around the cabin. There's a lot of electrical equipment yeah. nearby. So you have to clean it up. How you have to, how you're going to stop this leak, uh, you know, things like that. And so we're, yeah, there's a level of certification process to actually work through with the astronauts. And so, um, I've been working the last two years, I guess. Yeah. Around two years, to, um, to work this certification and I'm currently approaching my evaluation for, my backroom certification and then I'll enter in the front room. So my goal there is, you know, I want to work more closely with astronauts. I want to work more of these large coordination projects that involve, um, uh, 
things that could go wrong with maintenance. Like anyone who's worked in their garage on a car or tried to take apart their refrigerator or their dryer knows that, you know, you're going to have a mess of things at some point. Something's going to go wrong eventually. A little bit different. You can say, oh shit and walk away versus (laughs) if you have leaking water in space and you can't roll down the window, what do you do? Right. Yeah. Right. So the big thing that we actually do on the maintenance side is we're responsible for the space toilet. So uh, that's a, a component that likes to fail a lot. And so you can talk about, uh, urine and feces. Uh, so it sounds like I'm talking to my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she loves those stories. So wait, so, so pretty much it just, it just releases it. It releases it into space. What the feces and the urine? Yes. The TT and poo poo. No, no, no. It doesn't. We recycle the urine into drinkable water. Smart. But the poo-poo, as you uh, sophisticatedly point out. First off, that's a scientific term. Okay, yes. The the (laughs) poo-poo is far less uh, high-tech. It's literally you're pooping into a bucket and then you're trashing it. (laughs) You're trashing the bucket. (laughs) Trashing the bucket. That's going to be a new term. I'm going to go trash the bucket. Um, So wait, so. All right, so you want to be more. I think I'm just so. Okay. Um, Man, we've been talking for a little bit. I dig it. Let's, let's, let's. So. Okay. Where were we at now? We were talking about feces. Obviously that's the medical term and that's mm-hmm. the scientific term. So, um, so I guess, uh, what do you, I have to stop right now. This, yeah. All right. Look, I didn't even realize this. We've been talking for about an hour and 47 minutes yeah. right, about space and the fact that we're talking about space and starting off looking at the stars and helping Africa. We really just kind of just summed it up with, you know, talking about trash in the bucket, but let's get, let's get back to the real thing. Where are we at with you? Do you believe in aliens? Of course I do. <laughs> So is that common at a, a NASA? The of course I do. Even after those was those three theories that, about aliens not existing. I well, the three theories about mm, what is it? It's just like in the span of the Big Bang till now, an alien civilization couldn't advance to do these uh, light yeah. years, right? And then there's also the one like they killed killed themselves off, and there's there's where the stair. What is that model? You know, the, you know, yeah, the, yeah, I know the, what you're talking you about. You know, the stair yeah, model yeah. is like if they have to, they, if they pass through this filter, then the, this filter is going to hit them. So right. it seems like there's like, so is it is alien the belief in aliens? Is that a common theme at NASA? Um, I honestly, I feel like I haven't talked to a lot of people about aliens at work, which is actually maybe my next happy hour. I'm just going to probe everyone like Whoa. that probe. <laughs> Damn it, that was mine. No, seriously. So you, yeah, there's not so a lot of alien gossip. No, I think um, I probably get more alien gossip from my older cousin who loves conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. love conspiracy theories. We talk theory. about it a lot. But um, I feel like for myself, I definitely believe in aliens because we just talked about how massive the universe is. Yeah. Just massive. And I just feel like they're, the odds are against me when it comes to not believing in aliens. Like, so aliens, they cool or they chill? Um, They haven't messed with us yet. And I'm assuming they're smarter than us. Okay. Wait, why do you why do you assume that? Um, we make a lot of mistakes as humanity. <laughs> like the aliens are perfect. Um, so okay, so the aliens are smart. You can only go up from here, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually kind of true. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the point of getting to the moon, to getting to Mars, and getting yeah, yeah you just want to move forward. So, so talk. So let's get to this UFO talk that everyone's yeah. talking about in this room right now. Um, what's going on with that? UFOs. Um, I hundred percent believe that UFOs have come in like looked at us and been like, nope, I, I'm out of here. So is that kind of, uh, so is that kind of one of those things like your overall view of humanity is a, a pessimist <laughs> no, level or is it overall optimistic? Because it sounds pessimistic. Like, <laughs> like aliens not. don't want a piece from us. Like nobody like, I'm out of here. No, but I just, 
if aliens are smart enough that they found us, they are also smart enough maybe not to interfere. I am thinking as humanity, we interfere in things that are that we shouldn't mess with. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're good at that. The laws of nature. We're good at that. <laughs> and, you know, we impact other species in a negative way. Like we we don't think about our consequences. Yeah. And I think if intelligent life was smart enough to find us here, they probably would be smart enough not to mess with us is my point. But you know what's, what's interesting is during, during I think it was during uh, the lockdown, during COVID and all that stuff, I think the Pentagon like confirmed that there was like, oh yeah, we've been known about this. And like no one like no one cared. Everyone just kept scrolling. Yeah. Like what, what, what is it? What is that? I, I, that is big news. That's huge. I think it's, I think people, whenever they hear UFO or alien news, I think they're so um, jaded from just like, all the conspiracy theories out there that it just seems like another like clickbaity. Oh, there's so much clickbait out there. Was this just a clickbaity article? Like, you know, like depending on saying, I know, but also there's also high levels of mistrust with the government. So that's true. You know, I feel like there's like an ecosystem, a climate happening here where it just made it very easy for the Pentagon to be like, yeah, these things in the air that we cannot explain might be UFOs. (laughs) Like, Oh, okay. UAPs. Yeah. Is that what y'all call them? UAPs? Uh, unidentified. Aerial, aerial phenomena. Yes. Is that what y'all call them? I think, no, I think we call them UFOs still on our we'll side. Keep it old school. Yeah, yeah. I do. It's probably SpaX that calls it UAP. They're, <laughs> yeah. New kids they're, on the the, block. they're the trendy kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you call them UFOs. NASA calling it UFOs. So, mm-hmm. you, so you believe in uh, UFOs, you believe in UAPs and aliens, mm-hmm. and aliens aren't messing with us. No, they're not. Because, like I said, Has they're too it, smart. All right, we're off record now. Have you ever had astronauts ever been like, hey, Houston, we got something up here? Uh, absolutely not. I feel like they won't tell us because, again, they're probably too smart. They probably know that if they said something that all right, people well, would actually believe them. So let me ask you a question. Watching movies with you regarding to space, mm-hmm. annoying or not annoying? I am really good at suspending my, like, belief. So Why? I can watch just fine. But when I'm with other people that work at NASA, I cannot. It'd be a, ro- you'd just roast the film, roast the director. Yeah. So when I'm alone, I can enjoy a movie and just take it at face value and not like think critically about it and be like, wow, the physics of that just do not work. There are, there are super egregious, like, um, like explosions in space gravity like getting from but what about those one, uh, those the the isaac <laughs> amaltov the the spinning thing was like there's gravity once it starts spinning i don't i don't even so, remember so, I just rem- but i remember when something is so out of the realm of just like belief and i and i can't suspend it and i'm like this would absolutely make no sense like there are moments like that where i get out of it and i'm like whatever it's just a movie but when i'm with other nasa people it's like wow they did really good research when they like built this and that's like really wait let's talk about it i'm I'm really into movies i love this stuff and i love and i love the people calling you know that's that's bullshit i I love this stuff so okay give me the top three hollywood bogus stuff that they do that you're like you the nasa teams like we're not this is we don't buy this um how quickly decisions are made when they're not made in (laughs) mission control (laughs) okay that's 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 pretty good sorry it's just Things move slow unless they really need to move fast. So, so I love how you don't. I love how we're not talking about like space and science. We're talking about like the management, the red tape, yeah, the, the bureaucracy. Red tape. I'm like, can we get into something more fun about space? I'll be honest. The decisions are made that way. There's actually you have to approve it this way. They get to this approval. Yeah. So that the astronauts um, 
In space. So in space movies, I feel like there's a lot of drama between the astronauts. And obviously, I don't have any hot gossip. I don't have some sort of insight that I can tell you. But I can tell you that from what I understand, life on space station is more boring than the movies depict. So which makes sense. They want to liven it up. They want some sort of like character dilemmas or whatever. Well, um, in space is there, it's a lab. Yeah. You're literally just doing <laughs> science, lab, lab stuff all the time. Yep. All right. So it's the, it's the decision-making ability. So yeah. when you're watching movies, this is what, this is what fuels you. No, your- but really the stuff that like, the stuff that I would really point out is like, uh, the physics that are happening. So let's say, um, they're, I don't I want to like, I always go back to gravity. It's like they're moving from one, like a one space station to the other. Yeah. And they're just like, we're just going to move trajectories and like <laughs> from here to there. And it's yeah. like, Hey, first of all, you need a lot of fuel to do that. And then you need to have some sort of like docking capturing or some sort of like ability to even come close without destroying the other space station that you're trying to get to. Like there's just this weird, like, the physics behind it, and I think it was the movie Gravity that I was just like, wow, this does not make any okay. sense. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another, that's like probably the biggest one. Um, but the one thing I always look for, because my team is in charge of the hatches for the space station. Okay. So, the doors between the different modules. I always look at every space movie and I look at what their hatches look like. Oh, really? Because the mechanism behind them, sometimes they're really lifelike where I'm like, wow, they looked at pictures and they like mocked up like something for this film that looks eerily similar to the ones that we have on space station. And then some of them are like super non-robust and I'm like, this would never work. Like, wow, what? Idiots. Idiots. Yeah. All right. So what were your top space movies? Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Okay. Though my dad, I think, would be like, wow, Star, he's a Star Trek. Your dad's a well, Trekkie. That kind of makes sense. If he's breaking stuff apart, rolling sleeves up, building yeah. stuff, that's more of a Star Trek type of guy, I feel yeah. like. So you're more Star Wars. Yeah. A firm. Okay. So you're like episode one? Um, I don't know if I have a favorite. Okay. So. I don't, you can't. So actually, this is something I should say about me is the thing about movies, and maybe you got, got it from me trying to explain like scenes from movies that I'm like don't work for me, is that once I watch a movie, I forget a movie. I could watch a movie like three times and not remember half the plot. Ask Monica. I know. She's like, <laughs> oh my God, we saw that. Like, do you remember that? You remember this movie? I was like, oh yeah. What's it about again? She's like, that girl went to the hotel and it wasn't a hotel. I was like, oh yeah, totally. I'm like, all right. Google what happened in this movie. I don't remember. I'm yeah, the same no, way. I don't remember I'm anything. I will rewatch a movie as if I've never seen it. And well, someone you, will be like, you watched this with me last time. I know. It's, it's kind of like frustrating. You're like, am I getting older? Yes. Is my memory being gone? So what are your top three favorite space movies? Um, Interstellar. Of course. Apollo 13. Of course. And um, October Sky, which I think is a space. We could call it a space movie. It was actually one of my favorite movies as a kid. Um, it was a movie about a kid, a kid who, um, wanted to create a rocket to go to space. Okay. I think it's based off the book called Rocket Boys. Okay. You should definitely watch it. It's a really good movie. It had one of the Ryans, Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Gosling, I think. Doesn't matter. They're both yummy. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay. So you got a couple inspirational stuff in there. Interstellar is being very accurate. Yes. You know, and then you got (laughs) Apollo 13, you're like, which you're living, you know, not the, not the bad stuff, the, the, the 
Yeah. And then yeah. you got the uh, the inspiration of the mm-hmm. childhood of building a rocket. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, fifth well, element, nothing you, in there. No fifth element. I'm. That was a scientifically accurate yes. space movie. Um, Wait, so is that in your top three? I love, well, I mean, I just like that movie. Oh, okay. I mean, look, I can say Interstellar, but I feel like everybody says Interstellar for the sake of kind of going against the grain. Yeah. You know? I mean, Interstellar was great. I mean, the music, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, I mean, the physics, the time about, you know, you know, a minute here, seven, you know, it was fascinating. Yeah. It was moving. I mean, I mean, I can't imagine like taking off to save, you know, the human race. Next time my daughter, I walk in, she's a grandmother. It's, it's, the it's, Martian's also a good one. Did you watch The Martian? With the potatoes. With the potatoes. Oh, how they uh, communicated that, uh, Remember the the. No, I don't remember. We just talked about how I don't remember. Okay, well, just so, so I do remember. You you probably do remember that. So like I could probably incorporate this. Yeah. No, so like the, how they communicate. I thought that was pretty. I thought the yeah. Martian was really good. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I thought the Martian was good. Interstellar was good. I like that robot that kind of walks like that. Uh, yeah. Fifth Element was really. <laughs> fin- yes. What? No, no. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. It's a great movie. Uh, Fifth Element, and then um, Arnold Schwarzenegger had some good space movies, didn't he? Hold on. Get me there. What, which ones? Um, Like all. Doesn't he do that one? Oh, my God. I'm so bad with movies. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> what, what? Give me the premise and I'll know. And I'll know. Um, the Sky. Wait, is that the one? Skynet. Um, it's not a, that's Terminator. Terminator. That's not a space movie. <laughs> it has things to do with space. Kind of. Well, Adjacent. It's more AI stuff. Yes. It's more AI. Yeah. That's why I don't, yeah. That's why See, I don't, I don't trust do Boston movies. Dynamics. That's why I don't trust Boston Dynamics. Oh, that's, okay. Those robots are creepy as heck. Can Have they you, make them look less intimidating? And, and can they stop hitting them with like baseball bats <laughs> right? and hockey sticks? Like, and making them jump over like a billion obstacles. And then tripping them when they're doing <laughs> yeah. that. It's like, first off, stop messing with those robots. Like, you know what they're, they're going to so do? They're so creepy. Even the dog is creepy. First off. Yeah. Have you seen that black, do you watch Black Mirror? Um, I have seen a couple. Phenomenal. Yes. So there's one with the dog, with the hunting dogs in the black mirror. First off, I really wish they'd stop hitting those robots with, with cause you know, what's going to happen gonna, eventually robots are like, okay, that's it. Right. And then they're going to start, you know, they're going to start the Skynet. Yes. Okay. And they're going to be showing those films in the robot schools to elementary kids being yeah. like, this is why we don't trust the humans. You see what they did? Uh, you know, great grandpa Larry, that's what they're doing. They're hitting him with bats and hockey sticks just to test things out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, they're just going to retaliate and then it's game over because the androids, are they androids or no, robots? Um, uh, they're not androids. Um, they're not cyborgs either. They're just, they're just, they're, they're just, just terminators. Yeah. They're termi- yeah. terminators. One purpose to yes. extinguish the human race. Exactly. Yeah. No, I just, I, I kind of wish, look, there, someone needs to report the robot abuse that's happening up in Boston dynamics, but no one is because no one's they brave need to, yet. This is what, Congress needs to be doing is passing laws against robot abuse before it gets out of hand. Before it gets serious. Right. I mean, they're, they're going to be like, and then the, the robots will be playing this episode be like, these two people called it. Also imagine how many people have kicked their Roomba and not apologized. Well, then again, the Roomba's, if you have a dog, it's probably dragging shit between the uh, <laughs> things. So I would kick a Roomba too. You know what I mean? I wouldn't apologize. It's like, dude, could have moved around it. You could have deviated three inches, like, but you yeah, but around. you should have politely provided feedback. Did you hear about new Roombas? <laughs> Apparently, they're what? <laughs> I should have had debriefing. Yes. No, but do you hear about the new Roombas? They can actually detect uh, dog poop. Oh, really? Feces, and they won't trash the bucket. They'll just go around it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now this you, is innovation. This, the future is now. <laughs> this is this is what funding is going towards yes. in uh, the U.S. It's yeah. it's making people <laughs> things that. Fix the Roomba dog poop smear. Yes, that's yeah. what that's what's important in our lives. But yeah, so 
Anyway, Sophie, I had a blast with you today. This like, is a I great seriously, time. I mean, do you have do you have anything out there to 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 uh, uh, you know inspiring young people or kind of listen to this? I mean, because I'm sure, like, I mean, there's gonna be people listening to this that are, that want to hear, you know, you know, a, you know, a NASA engineer, NASA, you know, in mission control and all that stuff. I mean, what, do you have any like uh, advice, counsel, or, or just kind of like your thoughts on kind of uh, sparking that interest? Yeah. I mean, I would say what worked for me and I think what works for most people is continue to follow your passion, whatever that is. And I, I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier. If, if you're, if you're wanting to learn more about space, there's a ton of resources out there. There's a lot of uh, space blogs that you can follow and some YouTubers that are really great out there that are covering the the industry, the space industry. But, um, if you want to get into the industry itself, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Just follow your passion. And you'll find something that fits you just right. And it seems like the opportunity is getting out there more and more with all these commercial uh, uh, projects and all that stuff. So it seems like the opportunity might be there coming up in the future, too. Exactly. Yeah. I dig that. So I'm so glad you were able to do this finally. And I would love to have you back on again for a round two. We're I definitely know, doing part two. I did not realize we we're talking to two, two hours, two minutes and 35 seconds, yeah. but I enjoy and it. I, and I feel like we barely scratched the surface. I still don't even tell you about a day in the life yet. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> we'll get we there part two. Yet? You know, part <laughs> no, no, two. no. We, we got there, but we talked around it like three times. <laughs> I know. We're, I know. I, you know. I think I asked it three times. <laughs> it's too. okay. I went on four different tangents. And then we go off to like a robotic abuse, but yep. you know, whatever. Well, you we know, ended up strong. We ended strong. That's a very strong point to end on. It's a very strong thing for Congress to take up and go yep. to in the future of robotic uh, generations. But anyway, I want to, I want to thank, first off, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your afternoon. I really do appreciate it. I really do enjoy this conversation. I know you probably got to talk to Monica about Zelda right now, but there is so much more to talk to you about. Um, there's so much more that I'm interested in. I'm, I guarantee there's gonna be a lot of feedback from this. Like, well, what about this? What about, so I would love to have, have you back on Energy Crew. I really dig kind of, you know, your story, kind of, you know, what you're doing and just kind of, you keep you keep doing you, all right? Thanks, you keep JP. doing you. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, again, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, man.